The head of the UN warns that a full-fledged confrontation between Israel and Lebanon would be a disaster. This as the border is seen a nearly daily exchange of fire between Israel's army and Lebanon's Hezbollah. Coming up, the potential expansion of the conflict in the Middle East and what Washington can do to contain it. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the U.S. is once again describing the Houthis in Yemen as a terrorist group and is threatening to impose sanctions. Boeing has had a long and friendly relationship with federal regulators. Critics say too friendly. Managers at the FAA worked very closely with Boeing to speed production of planes and came to treat Boeing as its customer rather than the flying public. How the relationship evolved and how it could affect safety coming up. It's 401 News Headlines and the forecast are ahead. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Three Republican candidates remain after Iowa's caucuses on Monday. Former President Donald Trump won that contest, and he's leading in the polls ahead of the New Hampshire primary next week. But that contest is closer as Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley fight for votes. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben has more. Well, their messages haven't really changed since Iowa, except I guess you could say there is a bit more attacking between the candidates, especially between Haley and Trump. Uh, Last night at a rally, Trump made it very clear he's focusing on taking aim at Haley, both personally and uh, at some of her policies. Haley had an event last night where she also stuck to her usual script. She is set to give Trump more of a challenge here, so she's really focusing on hitting him. Here in New Hampshire, she's kind of trying to treat this as if it were a two-person race. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben reporting. And Trump went after Haley personally, referring to her by her first name, Namrata, on his social media site. She's the daughter of Indian immigrants, and Nikki is her middle name. She was born in South Carolina and is a U.S. citizen. Meanwhile, a judge in Maine has delayed a decision on removing Trump from the ballot in that state until the U.S. Supreme Court rules on a similar case in Colorado. Secretary of State Antony Blinken reiterated the need for a pathway to a Palestinian state today, saying Israel otherwise wouldn't get genuine security. There's a profound opportunity for regionalization in the Middle East, in the greater Middle East, that we have not had before. Uh, The challenge is realizing it. Speaking there to the New York Times on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in the Swiss resort of Davos. He says if Israel comes to the fold of the Middle East, the region could isolate Iran and its proxies, which include Yemen's Houthi rebels, which have been attacking commercial ships in the Red Sea. He called Iran the biggest security concern. Apple has made changes to how it charges phone users for apps and other services. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports, it follows the Supreme Court declining to hear an appeal of a lawsuit centered on the company's multi-billion dollar app store. Apple and the maker of the video game Fortnite, Epic Games, have been locked in a years-long legal battle over how Apple charges customers for apps. After a trial in which the judge mostly sided with Apple, both sides appealed. And now the Supreme Court is refusing to review the case. A central issue in the fight has been over Epic's allegation that Apple has a monopoly over how payments are processed and charges customers up to 30 percent of each transaction. Since the high court refused to step in, Apple released a statement saying it will now let app developers process payments at a lower fee. If developers choose to do this, Apple says it will take a 27 percent cut instead of 30. Bobby Allen, 
NPR News. Preliminary closing numbers on Wall Street. The Dow's down 94, NASDAQ down 88. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey will deliver her first State of the Commonwealth address tonight. Healey's office says she'll focus on topics including education and housing. WBUR's Amanda Beeland has more. Governor Healey is facing challenges going into tonight's speech. The state is facing a billion-dollar budget shortfall, and the legislature has failed to act on some of her big items, including a $4 billion proposal to build more housing. GOP analyst Ed Lyons says more needs to be done to solve the state's housing crisis. The progress has been slow. I think uh, she's going to have to become more innovative than she has been in terms of making it happen. But Gary Daffin, head of the Multicultural AIDS Coalition, says he sees the housing bill as progress on an issue where solutions take time. It's an enormous challenge. We can't expect it to have actually solved that problem, obviously, in a year or it's going to be a long time. Healy will take the stage at 7 p.m. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. WBUR's live coverage of the address begins at 645. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is opposing federal government efforts to seek the death penalty for the gunman in the Buffalo supermarket shooting in 2022. Ten people died in that attack. The gunman pleaded guilty to state charges, and the Department of Justice is seeking the death penalty on federal charges. Presley calls the racially motivated shooting heinous, but believes the death penalty is not justice. She sponsored legislation last year to ban capital punishment in federal cases. A new report finds that Cape Cod's bays and ponds continue to suffer from water pollution, mostly stemming from septic systems that have uh, leak excess nutrients. However, the Cape's public drinking water supplies, for the most part, have been better protected. Andrew Gottlieb is with the nonprofit Association to Preserve Cape Cod, which produced the report. Public policy back in the 1970s and 80s recognized the intrinsic need and value of protecting the land area around, on, or near your water supplies. And the result of those actions has been resounding success. The group rated 21 of Cape Cod's public drinking water supplies. All received ratings of excellent or good. Rose Kennedy Greenway Conservancy has new leadership. The nonprofit is responsible for the management and care of the Greenway. It announced today that Helena Ayekei has been elected to its board as board chair. The native of Ethiopia is currently executive vice president of Meet Boston, as formerly known as the Greater Boston Convention and Visitors Bureau. The Conservancy has also announced the promotion of Eileen to Director of Programs and Outreach. A cold January day leading to a colder January night, down to about 18 degrees overnight. Tomorrow, some clouds moving in. More as the day goes on. Gusty winds should stick to the upper 20s. Friday could see a return of snow. Not too much, though. Highs just about 30 degrees. 24 degrees now in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. It's a discovery from close to the dawn of time. Scientists have found the oldest known black hole, and it's upending ideas about the early universe. More on that discovery in a few minutes. First, since Israel's war against Hamas began, the U.S. has tried to contain the conflict to prevent a wider regional war from breaking out. Now, with U.S. attacks against Iran-backed rebels in Yemen, drone strikes in Iraq, and fighting across Israel's northern border with Lebanon, we have to ask, is that regional conflict the U.S. wanted to avoid already here? 
The last three presidents have tried to shrink the U.S. footprint in the Middle East, and our next guest, Ben Rhodes, worked for one of them. He was Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Good talking to you, Ari. So in your view at this moment, is the U.S. already involved in a regional war in the Middle East? Yes, uh, I think that regional war is here. And if you look at what's happened since October 7th, you've seen violence break out between a variety of different groups, uh, often backed by Iran um, and the U.S., uh, and then, of course, Israel and Gaza. So I think by any definition, you would call that a regional war. Uh, by any definition, that seems like a bad thing. So how can the U.S. try to tamp this down or get out of it? Or what should the U.S. strategy even be at this point? Well, from my perspective, obviously, this started with the horrific Hamas attack on October 7th. Uh, and then you've had this really brutal uh, and massive escalation over the last several months of the Israeli military operation in Gaza. And that's really the root of this wave of escalation. And so any pathway to de-escalation, I think, necessarily has to involve de-escalation and some form of ceasefire in Gaza. So you think um, as long as Israel continues its military campaign in Gaza, this wider regional war is not going to quiet down anytime soon? Yes. And, and look, uh, that's just the logic of the situation. I mean, you, you've seen uh, the longer this war goes on, the more there's a risk of escalation as different groups try to assert themselves, are opportunistic about it. You get into tit for tat back and forth. And look, you know, we're one uh, catastrophic event, you know, a successful attack on U.S. forces, for instance, uh, or uh, an attack on a U.S. diplomatic facility in a place like Iraq from this thing really escalating. You said that some groups are being opportunistic about this. And after the U.S. and the U.K. struck those targets in Yemen last week, a Houthi official named Nasruddin Amr told my colleague Jane Araf basically like, okay, now it's on. Here's what he said. It certainly means that there will be an escalation and expansion. The American and British bear the responsibility for the escalation they brought upon us. So Ben, is it possible that this is what the group wanted all along? Yes. And, and I think we have to be very careful about this. You know, Hamas, they're arsonists. They want the U.S. in this conflict. The Houthis, same thing. They are not afraid of this escalation. Uh, you know, the U.S. is entirely rational and right to want to protect the flow of commerce through the Red Sea. The global economy depends on that. However, you know, I get concerned when you escalate into the kind of direct strikes against the Houthis in Yemen for a couple of reasons. Uh, the Houthis, they're not going anywhere. That's where they live. That's where they're from. They've endured years and years of war and proven to be quite resilient through that. The capabilities they have are not very expensive, and they are not deterred by those strikes. As you hear in the clip, this is what they want. They want to be at the vanguard of a resistance to the United States and to Israel. But how do you avoid getting pulled into an unsolvable military objective when the Houthis seem to be deliberately provoking and saying, like, what are you going to do about it if we keep attacking these commercial ships in the Red Sea? There is a capacity, particularly if it's a foreign terrorist organization like an Al-Qaeda or an ISIS that is using somebody else's territory uh, to plan attacks and have foreign fighters there. That can be militarily dealt with and defeated. When you're dealing with uh, an indigenous population and a resistance group, an insurgent group like the Houthis or like the Taliban was in Afghanistan, that's an entirely different equation. And so to me, what you do is you try to protect the core interest of the free flow of commerce through the Red Sea. But when you start escalating into Yemen, I think it gets dangerous. As I mentioned, the last three presidents have tried to shrink the U.S. military role in the Middle East. Why do you think that is so difficult to do? 
Well, we have these interests uh, that keep drawing us back. We have enormous interest in oil and gas and fossil fuels, uh, despite the transition that we're undertaking. That makes us somewhat beholden uh, to some pretty unsavory Arab partners uh, in the Gulf. You're talking about Saudi Arabia, among others. Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar. Uh, then we have an interest, obviously, in our close relationship with Israel. In my view, that's much more challenging when the nature of the Israeli government is Bibi Netanyahu and the most far-right coalition were kind of tethered to a government that is not acting in concert with, I think, what the Biden administration would like them to be doing. Uh, and then we have, obviously, interest in counterterrorism. But I think we have to learn the lessons of the last couple of decades, which is there really aren't military solutions to these problems. And I think we have to be very careful. I don't think Israel, by the way, can solve its problems in Gaza militarily either. I think they're learning the same lesson that the United States learned painfully in multiple countries since 9-11. There has to be, I think, more of a pivot towards diplomacy, towards collective solutions, and towards marshalling resources to build something instead of this pattern of destruction that we've seen in the region. You've said this is not going to end until Israel's military assault on Gaza ends, or at least diminishes. That's not up to the US. So if you're President Biden trying to avoid a regional war and Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu is saying, we're going to keep striking Gaza. What option does the Biden administration have? I think they have options to utilize leverage on the Israeli government to try to de-escalate the situation. And look, the Biden administration has been messaging in recent weeks that they, they are concerned that they would like to see more aid get into Gaza, that they would like to see diplomacy to try to return hostages, that they would like to see some pathway towards a Palestinian state. Bear in mind that this Israeli government actually, as a matter of policy, rejects uh, the aspiration for a Palestinian state. So to me, you have to put on the table, we're going to condition our assistance. Uh, I also think diplomatically, the United States has basically been the shield for Israel in places like the UN Security Council. You have to be very careful, but I do think the United States can, can turn the dial forward a bit. We allowed a resolution to pass calling for humanitarian pause. I think there's ways to, again, explore diplomatically how can the United States be pressing Israel in the direction of de-escalation. Obviously, they have a right to defend themselves. They have a right to go after the military wing of Hamas. But that doesn't mean that the way that they're doing it is consistent with either their own interests or America's interests. And so at a certain point, I think you have to use the leverage that you have as Israel's principal ally in the international community to say, this path isn't working. Ben Rhodes was Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ari. And now it's time to turn to outer space, specifically black holes. Black holes and other massive objects that have been spied near the dawn of the universe are shifting our understanding of the earliest years of the cosmos. Here's science reporter Ari Daniel. Roberto Maiolino is an astrophysicist at the University of Cambridge. He's been pivotal in developing the James Webb Space Telescope that launched on Christmas Day two years ago. Maiolino is part of the team that designed and built one of the telescope's key instruments called the Near-Infrared Spectrometer. The instrument responsible for splitting the light of uh, galaxies and stars in their colors. So it's essentially the rainbow of the galaxy. 
In the first half of 2023, Maialino and his colleagues directed that powerful new telescope towards a special galaxy. It's called GNZ 11, and it formed 13.4 billion years ago, a mere 400 million years after the Big Bang. Now, GNZ 11 has been something of a puzzle. For such an old and compact galaxy, it was spectacularly bright. It would have required a large number of stars packed in such a small volume. But stars take time to form, and the universe was young then, too young to have had enough time for all those bright stars to be born. So Maialino and his colleagues pointed their new instrument at the GNZ11 galaxy. The detail of the particular rainbow that came streaming back was stunning. It was super exciting. But at the beginning, the spectrum was quite puzzling. It had a lot of unexplained features. So the team collected more data and speculated that the bright ultraviolet glow emanating from the distant galaxy was probably coming from huge amounts of gas swirling around and pouring into a black hole. The friction of all that gas being sucked inwards would have heated it up and lit it up, likely explaining why the galaxy was so bright. And that's how Maialino and his team figured out what they were dealing with, a supermassive black hole. And so at that point, uh, yes, the excitement doubled and got even more interesting, of course. Interesting, because this wasn't just any black hole. It's about 1.6 million times the mass of our sun, and it was in place just 400 million years after the dawn of the universe. It is essentially not possible to grow such a massive black hole so fast so early in the universe. Essentially, there is not enough time, okay, according to the classical theories. So one has to invoke alternative scenarios. Alternative scenario one. Supermassive black holes in the early universe were simply born big due to the collapse of vast clouds of primordial gas. Or, and here's scenario two, maybe early stars collapsed to form a sea of smaller black holes, which could have then merged or swallowed matter way faster than we thought, causing the resulting black hole to grow quickly. Or maybe it's a combo of both. The findings are published in the journal Nature. Priyava Natarajan is an astrophysicist at Yale University who wasn't involved in the study. These authors have made a persuasive case that there is a black hole, despite the fact that it has not been detected in the X-ray. The surefire proof that you have an actively accreting black hole. Natarajan says that if more black holes like this one are revealed, this may well mark the beginning of a new era of discovery in the outermost reaches of our universe. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. More good economic news coming up. Retail spending rose more than expected in December, capping off a solid holiday shopping season. That's ahead in about 20 minutes. The main stocks on Wall Street headed downward today. The Dow gave up a quarter of a percent. S&P lost more than a half percent. And the Nasdaq fell about six-tenths of a percent. Cambridge-based Biogen is looking to rent out more than 100,000 square feet of office space in its Kendall 
Capitol Square headquarters. The move is part of a downsizing that started after Biogen's troubled launch of an Alzheimer's drug in 2021. A Biogen spokesperson tells uh, the Boston Business Journal the company is optimizing its office footprint to align with the number of people who work remotely at least some of the time. The company laid off 11 percent of its workforce last year. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Boston Children's Museum, Family Fun All Winter, Sock Skating, Hands-On Science, Art, and 22 Exhibits to Explore and Discover, bostonchildrensmuseum.org, and Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices, stanhopeframers.com. Some clouds around overnight tonight, lows about 18 degrees. Tomorrow, gradually turning cloudy once again. Gusty winds, temperatures in the upper 20s. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday. With AI at the core of its system, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Herring fishermen in the Northeast don't want to be forced to pay for professional observers on their boats. They have sued, and that case is now before the Supreme Court, where protesters rallied today, urging the justices to uphold the precedent the fishermen object to. We object to this relentless power grab. Let me hear it again. We object. But the case isn't even really about fish, and it actually has far-reaching implications for the environment, health care, and the financial industry. NPR's Carrie Johnson watched it from the courtroom today, and she is now here in studio. Hello, Carrie. Hey, Juana. So, Carrie, enlighten me if you can. If this case is not about fish, then what is it about? You know, it took almost a half an hour for the topic of fish to come up at the oral argument in the court. And even that was kind of a passing mention. This case really is about federal regulation. What happens after Congress passes a law, a law that may not be clear about something? The question is, who gets to decide? Is it experts in federal agencies like the EPA or Health and Human Services? Or is it federal judges? And under a framework that's been in place for about 40 years, federal agencies make those calls now. But big business groups want the court to throw out that precedent, which is known as Chevron deference. Okay, and Carrie, what is the argument for scrapping the precedent? Lawyers for the fishermen say things are really out of whack as they operate now. They say the agencies have too much power, power that should belong to Congress or to federal judges who are supposed to interpret the law and who do that all the time. Here's Roman Martinez, a lawyer for the fishermen. We would respectfully suggest that the solution here is to recognize that the fundamental problem is Chevron itself. Interpretive authority belongs to the courts. He says the Supreme Court has really run away from this Chevron precedent for years now, and there's really no way to fix it. He says it might take a decoder ring to figure out how to apply the law properly here. And he told these justices, end it, 
Don't mend it. All right, then. Carrie, that's the argument for getting rid of this framework. So tell us then, what's the case for keeping the president in place? Justice Elena Kagan really jumped on the lawyer for the fisherman. She asked him a bunch of really tough tough hypothetical questions like this one. There's a new product designed to promote healthy cholesterol levels. Would that be a dietary supplement or a drug? And then she asked him a bunch of questions about artificial intelligence. She was basically arguing those are calls that should be made by experts at agencies, not judges. Here's more from Justice Kagan. It's best to defer to people who do know, who have had long experience on the ground, who have seen a thousand of these kinds of situations. And, you know, judges should know what they don't know. The Biden administration is arguing for the Chevron framework to stay in place, too. The Solicitor General says that it's a bedrock part of administrative law that's been cited thousands of times over the years. She says if the Supreme Court overturns another big precedent like they did with abortion, it's going to bring thousands of cases, cases that will swamp the courts and the Justice Department. And Carrie, I know it's always tricky to predict how the Supreme Court's going to rule just based on the argument, so I won't ask you to pull out a crystal ball here, but did the justices offer any clues to what we might see? Yeah, most of the court's conservatives seem really skeptical about keeping Chevron. Justice Neil Gorsuch, who already wrote this precedent, deserves a tombstone was pretty clear again today about wanting to get rid of it. So were Justice Brett Kavanaugh and Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas, too. But Amy Coney Barrett, another Trump appointee, seemed really worried about opening the floodgates to more litigation if they got rid of this precedent. I didn't hear five votes to walk away from this 40-year-old case, but I could be. We'll, We'll learn more about whether the justices want to chip away at it by the summertime, and that's when a decision is expected. NPR's Carrie Johnson. Carrie, thank you. My pleasure. Okay, to news now that the U.S. is blacklisting Iranian-backed Houthi rebels again, this time to put pressure on them to stop attacking ships in the Red Sea. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports on the new diplomatic campaign to ease one of many flashpoints in the Middle East. The U.S. military has been striking Houthi targets in Yemen. Now diplomats are trying to use the levers they have to punish the Houthis, placing them on a list of specially designated global terrorists. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says this is in response to Houthi drone and missile strikes on ships in the Red Sea. The United States, with allies and partners around the world, has made clear that there must be consequences for those attacks. And today's designation follows on our military action last week to hold the Houthis accountable. For their actions. It's been a difficult balancing act for the Biden administration. Three years ago, it took the Houthis off a different terrorism blacklist to facilitate aid to the war-torn nation and to help move along a peace process between the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels and a Saudi-led military coalition. The new terrorism designation goes into effect a month from now and is set up in a way that should allow aid and diplomacy to continue. Gerald Firestein, a former U.S. ambassador to Yemen, says the latest move is mostly symbolic. Shipping arms to the Houthis is already banned by the UN Security Council. Houthi leaders are sanctioned. Houthi financiers are sanctioned. So um, there's really nothing much that a designation adds to any of that. Houthis don't travel. They don't have bank accounts overseas. They don't really do very much. So he thinks the U.S. is just grasping at straws, trying to figure out ways to influence the Houthis who control much of Yemen. The Houthis say they're attacking ships in the Red Sea to protest Israel's war in Gaza. And Firestein, who's with the Middle East Institute, says the U.S. strikes and the terrorist designation just play into their hands. 
Their position on Gaza is very popular with Yemenis, even with Yemenis who don't support the Houthis. Uh, they think that it's uh, good for them to raise their regional profile and to be seen as a core member of the Iranian axis of resistance. So he doesn't think they'll be deterred by sanctions or even the recent U.S. military strikes. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he thinks the best way to isolate Houthis, as well as Iran and other Iranian proxies, is to integrate Israel into the region. And Blinken believes that Arab states are still willing to normalize ties with Israel if there's a real pathway to a Palestinian state. This is actually clear when you look at it and see it. The problem is getting from here to there. And of course, it requires very difficult, challenging decisions. It requires a mindset that's open to that perspective. Blinken was speaking in Davos, Switzerland, where his Iranian counterpart was also making the rounds, warning of more intense conflicts in the region if Israel does not stop its military campaign in Gaza. In the meantime, the Houthis continue their attacks in the Red Sea, and while Ambassador Feierstein doesn't think they want to return to the war in Yemen, he says there are risks of miscalculations. He says a successful attack on a U.S. Navy ship could push the U.S. to a more aggressive posture. So it's those kinds of things that I think are more worrisome than, you know, seeing uh, either side really going in for uh, all-out war. U.N. officials are worried about something else. U.S. sanctions could impact their work. Yemen is highly dependent on international aid. U.S. officials insist there will be carve-outs to make sure Yemeni civilians don't suffer more. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in New Hampshire. Thousands of Democratic voters have switched their party affiliation to Republican or undeclared ahead of the state's primary next week. Some say they switched to support Nikki Haley over Donald Trump. After one year in office, Governor Maura Healey will deliver her first State of the Commonwealth address tonight. Listen for live special coverage starts at 6.45 tonight, right here at 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Boston Celtics are at home tonight to host the San Antonio Spurs, and the Bruins have the night off. Overnight tonight should be cold, down to about 18 degrees, pretty windy tonight. Tomorrow, increasing clouds, gusty winds, temperatures in the upper 20s. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. Antipa Fernandez Bernardo Arevalo was sworn in as Guatemala's president this week, but he worried this day might not come as the ruling class fought to keep him and his anti-corruption party out of office. Democracy is uh, at a difficult moment. What challenges lie ahead next time here and now? Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. 
In the Middle East, a shipment of medicine for dozens of hostages being held by Hamas is en route to Gaza. It's the first agreement between Israel and the militant group since a week-long ceasefire allowed humanitarian aid to get through to Palestinians back in November. The war in Gaza shows no sign of ending and has sparked tensions across the region today. During a White House briefing, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby designated the Iranian-backed Houthis global terrorists for attacking commercial shipping in the vital Red Sea that's prompted retaliation from the U.S. and Britain. Diplomacy, information, military, economic. We're using all those levers of national power and, frankly, international power uh, to try to convince the Houthis to, to stop these attacks. And if they don't, and they clearly haven't, to make sure that we're holding them accountable for that. Kirby says today's designation targets the Houthis, not the Yemeni people who remain among the world's poorest with more than 15 million in desperate need of food. The chairman of the House Judiciary Committee says new negotiations are underway with Hunter Biden's legal team a week after Republicans initiated an effort to hold the president's son in contempt. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports. With Hunter Biden's legal team negotiating his possible testimony behind closed doors, it's put an effort for the House to hold him in contempt this week on hold. Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan told NPR that talks with Hunter Biden's attorney, Abby Lowell, have been positive so far. Hunter Biden is coming in. Um, we don't have a day, but, we, but the, had, we've had, uh, our counsel's had good conversations with Mr. Lowell. Jordan signaled the deposition date could be set as early as next week or beyond. However, House Republicans have warned if new delays continue, they will resume their effort to hold Hunter Biden in contempt. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, Nalisa Mullins. Boston Public Schools are celebrating the largest donation in their history. The school system is receiving $38 million from Bloomberg Philanthropies. WBUR's Carrie Young reports the money will train high schoolers in health care careers and set them up with jobs right after they graduate. The grant is part of a larger initiative from Bloomberg that pairs high schools in 10 U.S. communities with hospital systems struggling with workforce shortages. Mass General Brigham, which has 2,000 job vacancies, will collaborate with BPS. Ann Klebanski is the president and CEO. What we will do is dramatically enhance our ability to train educate and diversify the next generation of healthcare professionals at such a critical time for our workforce. BPS will use the money to double in size the Edward M. Kennedy Academy for Health Careers to 800 students and add new career pathways. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. A state judge in Maine is putting on hold the decision to keep former President Donald Trump from appearing on the primary ballot there. Maine Secretary of State ruled last month that Trump should be removed from the ballot for his role in the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. Today, the judge said the decision should wait for a U.S. Supreme Court ruling on a similar case in Colorado. Massachusetts election officials will hold a hearing tomorrow on efforts to keep Trump off the ballot here. Gerard Mayo was formally introduced today as the New England Patriots' next head coach. At this afternoon's news conference, team owner Robert Kraft recalled something that Mayo said shortly after the team drafted him in 2008. Kraft and Mayo, they go together pretty well. WBR's Fausto Menard has more on today's announcement. Mayo is the team's 15th head coach and its first black one. He says that significance is not lost on him. You better believe it. Being the first black coach here in New England means a lot to me. Kraft also acknowledged the importance, but says he chose Mayo because he's the right man for the role. 
Mayo says it's now his job to help develop players and coaches. I don't want to teach them what to think. I want to teach them how to think. And once we get to that point, I think we can get back to where we need to be at the top. Mayo says right now he's evaluating the team and is not ready to announce any personnel decisions. But he says the team already has great leadership. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. Partly cloudy overnight tonight, pretty windy, cold. Should be around 16 for a low. Tomorrow we could make it to around 30 degrees with clouds collecting during the day. Still some gusty winds. 24 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Sony Pictures Classics, presenting Freud's Last Session, a new film starring Anthony Hopkins as Sigmund Freud and Matthew Goode as C.S. Lewis, who converge in a battle over the existence of God, now playing only in theaters. And from Jitasa, providing bookkeeping, accounting, and CFO services exclusively to the nonprofit sector. Jitasa is committed to helping nonprofits do what they do best. More at J-I-T-A-S-A dot com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. These days, when you think of Boeing, the words that come to mind might be door plug, 737 MAX, grounded. But before this month's in-air safety debacle, before the Ethiopian and Lion Air crashes five years before, Boeing was synonymous with something else, American industry and innovation. So much so that former President Obama joked he worked for Boeing. I'm expecting a a gold watch uh, uh, from Boeing at the end of my presidency uh, because uh, I I know that uh, I'm I'm on uh, on the list of top salesmen. Uh, at, at, at Boeing. And Donald Trump added this flourish to the usual presidential sign-off during a visit to a 787 Dreamliner plant in South Carolina. May God bless the United States of America and God bless Boeing. Now the special relationship between the U.S. and Boeing is now under new scrutiny. NPR transportation correspondent Joel Rose is here to walk us through how the relationship has evolved and what the past Boeing safety crises might tell us about the current one. Hey, Joel. Hey, Mary Louise. So, you know, normally the U.S. government would resist putting a finger on the scale in favor of any one private company. As we just heard there, that has not been the case with Boeing. Why? Well, it is such a major piece of the U.S. economy, both as a military contractor and in commercial aviation. It is a huge employer. Um, The U.S. government even has a special bank called the Export-Import Bank that extends financing for overseas buyers. Jokingly, it is called Boeing's Bank because the company is such a big beneficiary. So the U.S. wants airlines in other countries to buy Boeing's planes. And right now, that is the MAX series. Boeing 737 MAX is the company's biggest seller ever, the key to its financial future. In theory, all of this is not supposed to affect how regulators treat Boeing. In the real world, the company has a lot of power. I talked to Jim Hall. He's the former chair of the National Transportation Safety Board. And he says Boeing acts like it is too big to fail. It's not complicated. (laughs) There's a great deal of influence exercised through fundraising to members of Congress. There's a great uh, coziness or familiarity between all of the parties. And um, so who's the bad cop? No one wants to be the bad cop, Hall says, and Boeing's leaders know that. 
Okay, but people did start to look at this relationship differently a few years ago. Take us back to this moment, 2019? Actually, 2018 and 2019, there are two crashes of Boeing jets under very similar circumstances. Uh, They both involve the same plane, the 737 MAX 8. Hundreds of people were killed. After the first crash in Indonesia, Boeing maintained that the pilots were mostly to blame. And then about five months later, there was a second crash, Ethiopian Air, in 2019, which was nearly identical to the first. At that point, regulators in other countries mostly grounded the Boeing MAX 8 immediately. The Federal Aviation Administration, though, was basically the last to take that action. The last to take action. Okay, and so investigators started digging into what happened. What they find? They found systemic problems at Boeing, both with the design of the airplane and with pilot training. And there were some dramatic moments when Boeing CEO Dennis Mullenberg testified before Congress back in 2019. We can and must do better. We've been challenged and changed by these accidents. Mullenberg was surrounded at that hearing by family members holding up photos of the crash victims. There was one mother there by the name of Nadia Milleron. She lost her daughter, Samia Stumo, in the second crash. Our daughter got on the plane completely trusting, and she never dreamed that there would be any problem with the plane itself. And there was a huge problem. That was Milleron speaking with NPR's Morning Edition the week of the hearing. And Mullenberg was pushed out, actually, just a few months after. Okay, so Joel, this all lands us to the question of Boeing and how it is regulated or not regulated. And this curious fact that the FAA actually turned over some of its oversight responsibilities to Boeing employees. How did that system come to be? Yeah, this has been the norm for quite a while. The FAA has delegated some of its oversight authority to manufacturers going back all the way to the 1950s. The FAA has come to rely more and more on Boeing, though, over time, as the planes have gotten more complex and the supply chains have as well. Peter Robison is an investigative reporter for Bloomberg News and wrote a book about Boeing called Flying Blind. He spoke to NPR's Here and Now earlier this month, and here's a, here's a bit of that interview. What I traced was a distortion in the relationship where the regulator came to feel almost that it worked for Boeing. The, the managers worked very closely with Boeing to speed production of planes, and, and the managers uh, at the FAA r- really came to treat Boeing as, as its customer rather than the flying public as, as the people it was serving. Robison says he saw this accelerating in the early 2000s as regulators were pushed to hand off more work to Boeing. Because they trusted Boeing and these engineers knew the planes best, and also because it was cheaper for the FAA, And around the same time, a lot of Boeing watchers say the culture at the company was shifting, too, to be more focused on the bottom line and less focused on safety. Okay, so that's the system as it was. Then you had these two awful crashes, these two big 737 MAX disasters. What changed? Well, Congress passed a bill, and the FAA made some changes that were supposed to tighten up how this authority is delegated. They put more safety inspectors in factories. And a new CEO took over at Boeing, who said safety culture was going to be a bigger priority. Um, The MAX 8 planes were grounded for almost two years before they finally start flying again. And Boeing seemed to be slowly recovering from these crashes. Yeah. And now we find ourselves at the start of 2024, and there's this latest dangerous incident on a Boeing MAX plane, this time the 737 MAX 9. Was this also a failure in design, in regulation? What? Well, there's a lot about this incident that is different. We're talking about an Alaska Airlines flight earlier this month where a panel known as a door plug blew out in midair. 
the investigation is still ongoing into what caused this, but so far it appears to be a problem in the manufacturing process, not a design flaw. And also, of course, no one died in this incident. But Boeing's critics would say there is a troubling similarity, which is that the company once again seems to be putting the bottom line ahead of safety by rushing these planes off the factory floor at the rate of more than one per day. This time, I will say Boeing has moved a lot faster to acknowledge the mistake. Here's CEO David Calhoun speaking at an all-hands meeting last week at a factory outside of Seattle. We're going to approach this, number one, acknowledging our mistake. We are going to approach it with 100% and complete transparency every step of the way and to make sure that this event can never happen again. One other key difference I want to note is the reaction of the FAA. This time, they grounded the similar MAX 9 planes very quickly, and they seem to be in no rush to recertify them to to fly again. Okay, so everybody's trying to handle this differently, handle it better, but it does prompt the big question, are all those changes in FAA oversight and regulation that Congress passed back in 2020, are they working? Is it enough? The FAA says it is looking at bigger changes now in the wake of this latest incident. The head of the FAA, Mike Whitaker, said last week that the agency will consider whether to bring in a third party to oversee safety at Boeing, which would be a huge shift. I mean, the bottom line is the FAA is in a very difficult spot. They cannot inspect every bolt on every plane. But business as usual does not seem to be a good option either. We are talking about possibly reinventing how the agency regulates one of the biggest players, not just in the aviation industry, but, you know, the entire U.S. economy. Thank you, Joel. You're welcome. And Pierre's Joel Rose. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Santa had a lot of helpers last month as Americans snapped up toys, clothes, and sporting goods. New figures from the Commerce Department today show that Americans spent freely during December, and that capped off a solid holiday shopping season. That is important because consumer spending is such a big driver of the overall U.S. economy. NPR Scott Horsley is here with details of how much we spent and what we spent on it. Hello, Scott. Great to be with you, Anna. So, Scott, big picture here. What do the receipts tell us? December was a pretty good month for retailers, uh, and as you said, it rounds out a pretty good year. Uh, Retail sales rose six-tenths of a percent between November and December. That's better than forecasters had expected, and it suggests that shoppers rolled into the new year with no sign of hitting the brakes. It has not been a winning bet to turn against the U.S. consumer, that's for sure. Tim Quinlan is an economist who tracks retail spending at Wells Fargo. He says one surprise is that cash registers at department stores were ringing loudly last month after what had been a pretty lackluster year. Department stores were one of the best performing categories, at least on a month-over-month basis. Department stores really could have used the help this month, and they, they certainly found it. Kind of a throwback there with lots of gift wrap Macy's and Kohl's boxes under Christmas trees around the country. Department store sales were up 3% in December. Uh, Sales were also up at bookstores and sporting goods stores. And, oh, by the way, Internet retailers did pretty well, too. Hearing a whole lot of up, up, up from you there. Were sales down anywhere, though? They were. Sales at gas stations were down in December. Of course, gasoline prices have come down over the last year, and that left shoppers with more money to spend elsewhere. Furniture sales were also down last month and most of last year. They tend to follow home sales, which have been depressed for a while as a result of high mortgage rates. 
Restaurant sales were also flat in December, and that was kind of surprising because for most of last year, people were flocking to restaurants. Uh, Their sales jumped more than 11%, which is more than twice the increase in restaurant prices. Maybe in December, people just opted to enjoy a little more home cooking, uh, and grocery stores sales were up a little bit last month. I should note this retail report we got today is an important indicator, but it's not the whole story. We're going to have to wait until next week to get a more complete picture of consumer spending on services like travel and entertainment. Scott, what I'm hearing from you suggests that 2023 ended on a high note. But I have to ask, how long can people keep up this level of spending as we are moving into the new year? Yeah, that's the trillion-dollar question, and there's a lot riding on it. Uh, Economist Quinlan thinks we might see some moderation in spending growth this year, but no sudden slowdown. Uh, Earlier this week, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York released a survey showing that a lot of people do plan to be a little more cautious in their spending this coming year. Of course, Quinlan says that's kind of like when I say I plan to eat healthier and exercise more. What people say they're going to do often is a, a reflection of their noblest ambitions. In, in practice, I, I don't think that it's particularly helpful for, for gauging where consumers go. Ultimately, you know, the only thing that's going to stop this consumer is if the credit card gets taken away or if the cost of financing it becomes too prohibitive. The jump in retail spending uh, in December was bigger than the average pay raise that month, and that probably can't go on indefinitely. Some people are leaning more on their credit cards. You know, credit card debt has grown to a record high of more than a trillion dollars. And for people who don't pay off their balance every month, which is nearly half of all credit card users, this is very expensive debt. Uh, The average interest rate on credit cards is nearly 23%. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Preliminary numbers show more than 21 million Americans signed up for Obamacare this year, a huge increase since President Biden took office. 15 million people, though, have been kicked off Medicaid. That story coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at vrtx.com. Partly cloudy, pretty windy overnight tonight. Should be cold, about 16 degrees for a low. Then tomorrow, doubling to about 30 degrees, clouds collecting during the day. Gusty winds still, though. 24 degrees now in Boston. After a year in office, Governor Maura Healey will deliver her first State of the Commonwealth address tonight. Listen for live special coverage starting at 645 tonight here at 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. And Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. The actor Daniel Kaluuya grew up in London. Now he's directing a story set in London public housing where people are resisting eviction. We wanted to explore and celebrate that and uh, show what is worth fighting for. The characters in a housing project called The Kitchen. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News.
Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Following Donald Trump's convincing win in the Iowa caucuses, the race for the Republican presidential nomination now turns to next Tuesday and the primary in New Hampshire. There, Nikki Haley's poll numbers have been improving, giving her a shot at an upset victory against Trump. Anthony Brooks of member station WBUR reports. Voters like Marie Mulroy of Manchester might hold the key for Haley in next week's primary. She's an unenrolled or independent voter who fervently opposes Donald Trump. He doesn't have a moral compass. I don't understand how anybody could vote for him. Mulroy leans Democratic and voted for Joe Biden in 2020. But she's so concerned that Trump could be reelected president that she plans to pull a Republican ballot next week and vote for Nikki Haley. She has the ability to get elected to beat Trump, and the primary goal is not to ever let Trump back in office again, to be honest. Let's just kick it off with Nikki Haley. There we go. That's New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, who has endorsed Haley and has been cheering her on as she campaigns across the state. In Bretton Woods yesterday, Haley, who's 51, said it's time for a new generational leader. 70% of Americans have said they don't want to see another Trump-Biden rematch. The majority of Americans think that having two 80-year-olds running for president is not what they want. In contrast to Trump, Haley strikes a more moderate tone that appeals to many of New Hampshire's independents who make up the state's largest block of voters. Sununu says they're a big reason he believes Haley can beat Trump next week. People are just tired of the chaos, right? And when you look at the fact that well over 50% of the Republican core base voter wants someone else, the fact that in New Hampshire you're going to have independents that come out, I believe, in record numbers. Sununu says he's seen enough primaries to know when someone has momentum, and he says Haley has it. New Hampshire Secretary of State says more than 4,000 Democrats switched their party affiliation to undeclared or Republican ahead of next week's primary. That could help Haley. So could the efforts of Robert Schwartz. He's co-founder of Primary Pivot, a super PAC urging centrist and center-left voters to vote for Haley as a way to stop Trump. We are seeking to damage Donald Trump because we believe he's an existential threat to democracy. Schwartz is urging Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents who plan to vote for President Biden in November to support Haley in the primary. But some leading Democrats in the state disagree. Nikki Haley is not the person to stop Donald Trump. The only person who's going to be able to stop Trump is Joe Biden in the November election. Kathy Sullivan is the former chair of the New Hampshire Democratic Party, who's leading a writing campaign for President Biden. He won't be on the primary ballot next week because the Democratic National Committee, at Biden's behest, picked South Carolina to vote first. Sullivan says even if Haley wins New Hampshire, Trump holds big leads in scores of states that follow. So she believes Trump will be the Republican nominee and says Democrats and independents need to get behind Biden now. If you want to beat Donald Trump in November, the best thing you can do is write in Joe Biden on the primary ballot to give Joe Biden a boost of energy and momentum going forward into the campaign. Beyond that, Sullivan argues that Haley is a staunch conservative who signed some of the most restrictive abortion measures ever passed in South Carolina and who has refused to rule out becoming Trump's running mate. When Haley talks about Trump, she picks her words carefully, saying he was the right president at the right time, but then adds chaos follows him. 
Haley's third-place finish in Iowa was a disappointment, but she says New Hampshire is a new ball game. And our goal was to be strong in Iowa. We were. It's to get stronger in New Hampshire. We'll do that. It's to go to my sweet state of South Carolina and continue to get stronger. That's what we're going to focus on. The New Hampshire primary has a long history of delivering surprises, and next week could be another. For NPR News, I'm Anthony Brooks. Schools across the country are using anonymous tip lines to prevent gun violence. And now, a new study in the journal Pediatrics finds that the line in one state is successfully catching these kinds of threats. Doing so is critical. Gun violence is the leading cause of death for children and teens in the U.S. That has been the case since 2020, when guns surpassed car accidents. NPR's Ritu Chatterjee has this report, which does mention suicide. This particular tip line is being used across 23 states. It's called the Say Something Anonymous Reporting System. It trains students and school staff to identify signs of potential violence and self-harm. And then students can anonymously report a potential threat through an app, a phone number, or a website. Elise Tuline is at the University of Michigan's Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention. Youth have a particularly important viewpoint. They often know much more than the adults do about what's going on in their, you know, relationships, in their their school communities. So they're often the first to notice a concerning behavior or potential threat. Tulin says when a student reports something to the tip line, it goes to the Sandy Hook Crisis Center, where crisis counselors try to engage with the tipster. These individuals are trained to live triage the tips. One very cool thing about the Say Something Anonymous report system is that teens can actually have a conversation with a crisis center counselor live. The counselors gauge the nature of the threat and loop in school staff. If the threat seems urgent, then they also connect with local law enforcement. Talene and her colleagues analyze the system in one southeastern state, North Carolina, which has the tip line in all school districts. We collected the data from tips that had been submitted over four academic years. That's 2019 to 2023. There were more than 18,000 tips submitted to the Anonymous Reporting System, or ARS. What we found is that 10% of tips contain reference to a firearm. So youth are turning to ARS to submit information about what can be very highly risky situations. While these gun-related tips also included concerns about bullying, interpersonal conflicts and suicide, 38% were about potential school shootings. Nearly a quarter were about seeing or knowing of a weapon. And, Talene says, We found that 50% of the time that tips containing a firearm were requiring that urgent response. A separate analysis of the data by the Sandy Hook Promise Foundation shows that the tips and interventions that followed prevented six planned school shootings and 38 instances of school violence over the four years. The tips also flagged more than 100 cases where a suicide crisis was averted. Beverly Kingston studies violence prevention at the University of Colorado Boulder. She wasn't involved in the new study and says its findings are heartening. It demonstrates that that anonymous reporting systems can be a useful and a practical strategy to address gun violence and other concerning behaviors. She says these findings are timely given that gun violence is now a major public health problem. In a country that has the level of firearms that we have, we need to have anonymous reporting. Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News. 
If you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three digits, 988. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. After a cold day, we'll have a really cold night tonight, only in the mid-teens. Tomorrow could make it to about 30 degrees. We should have a gusty wind, lots of gray around tomorrow, more clouds as the day goes on. Could have some snow showers on Friday, not adding to too much, though. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The federal health insurance marketplace, healthcare.gov, just had its biggest open enrollment period ever. When the dust settles at the end of January, when all the numbers are in, I suspect it's going to be around 21.3 million. That's nearly double the number of people who are enrolled when President Biden took office. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also, border control in the U.S. South. Texas and the Biden administration sharply disagree over who has jurisdiction at the southern border and how to tackle the ongoing migrant crisis. The writer E. Jean Carroll testifies in her defamation case against former President Trump, saying his remarks about her shattered her reputation. Also, the effect of cold weather on EV batteries and how to maximize range in the cold these stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.S. says it is putting Houthi rebels back on a terrorism blacklist to punish them for attacking ships in the Red Sea. Some aid groups are worried that this could complicate their efforts in Yemen, as NPR's Michelle Kalman explains. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says there have to be consequences for Houthi missile and drone strikes on merchant ships and U.S. Navy vessels. These attacks against international shipping have endangered mariners and disrupted the free flow of commerce and freedom of navigation. The new sanctions take effect a month from now, and the U.S. says they'd be dropped if the Houthis stop attacking ships. Officials say they're also trying to make sure that the sanctions don't get in the way of humanitarian efforts in Yemen, a country that is dependent on international aid. The Houthis control much of the country. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The main judge today paused a decision by the state's top election official to remove Donald Trump from the Republican primary ballot until the U.S. Supreme Court rules 
on a similar case in Colorado. Steve Missler from member station Maine Public has more. Trump's legal team appealed Secretary of State Shanna Bellows' decision last month to bar the former president from the primary ballot and then asked a state judge to delay her decision until the high court rules on the Colorado case, potentially making the Maine lawsuit moot. Superior Court Justice Michaela Murphy's 17-page decision doesn't grant Trump's request for a stay, but effectively orders Bellows to adhere to the Supreme Court's ruling. The high court has scheduled oral arguments in the Colorado case for February 8th, which is just a few weeks before both states' presidential primary contests. For NPR News, I'm Steve Missler in Augusta, Maine. It's not clear what it will mean in terms of the aviation industry, but a decision by a federal judge to reject the proposed merger of JetBlue and Spirit Airlines will have an impact. Some Wall Street analysts are already raising the possibility for, of bankruptcy for Spirit the day after the judge blocked the proposed $3.8 billion deal. Retail sales got a bigger-than-expected bump up in December as Americans continue to spend freely. NPR's Scott Horsley reports on the latest numbers from the Commerce Department. Retail spending rose by six-tenths of a percent in December, rounding out a solid holiday shopping season. Spending at department stores jumped by three percent, while spending on furniture and electronics was down. People spent less money at gas stations in December, but a little bit more money at the grocery store. Supermarket sales narrowly outpaced grocery inflation. Spending at restaurants in December, however, was flat. U.S. industrial production inched up by a tenth of a percent last month. Manufacturing output was also up. Utility production was down in December, but utilities will likely make that up in January as Arctic weather boosts demand for heating. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Stocks lost ground on Wall Street today for a second straight session. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Court hearings have been delayed for about two dozen people accused of being customers of a commercial sex ring in Massachusetts. The accused were to appear in Cambridge District Court tomorrow to determine whether they'll be criminally charged with paying for sex at apartments in Cambridge and Watertown. But one justice on the state's Supreme Judicial Court has delayed the hearings until further orders from the court. Here's WBUR's Deborah Becker. Associate Justice Frank Gaziano postponed the hearings after opposition from defense attorneys and others. They argued it's not fair to have public hearings to determine whether criminal charges will be filed because once charges are filed, that information then becomes public. The attorneys also disputed federal prosecutors' comments that high-profile individuals were customers of the ring that operated in Massachusetts and Virginia. The ruling follows requests from media outlets, including WBUR, for documents on those accused. Justice Gaziano gave the attorneys until Monday to further respond. Three people accused of operating the ring are being held pending trial. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Boston Public School students will have a chance to take part in a nationwide program to help train the next generation of health care workers. They'll get training in school and then be connected to jobs with Mass General Brigham after they graduate. The hospital group CEO Ann Klebanski says that that will fill a critical shortage of health care workers in the region. Mass General Brigham right now, we have 84,000 employees. We have 2,000 vacancies. And who are these people? They include nurses, physician assistants, surgical technicians, and laboratory technicians. So we hear a lot about the need for health care workers. 
The program is funded with a $37 million gift from Bloomberg Philanthropies. A new poll gives Donald Trump a 16-point lead in New Hampshire leading up to next week's primary. The Suffolk University Boston Globe NBC 10 survey finds 50 percent of likely Republican voters plan to vote for or are leaning toward Trump. Nikki Haley has 34 percent support. The two-time defending Boston Marathon men's champion is looking to make it a three-peat. Race organizers say Evans Jabet will be part of the field of lead runners this coming April. He's looking to become the first three-in-a-row winner since 2008. The defending men's wheelchair champion Marcel Hoog will also return. He has set a course record for last year for his sixth title. Partly cloudy tonight, a bracing wind, about 16 for a low. Tomorrow could make it to about 30 degrees with clouds collecting during the day. Gusty wind still. 23 degrees in Boston at 507. WBUR supporters include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The weekend drowning deaths of three Mexican migrants, a woman and two children, on the border near Eagle Pass, Texas, have further raised tensions between Texas's governor and the Biden administration. Republican Greg Abbott and the White House sharply disagree over who has jurisdiction at the border and how to best address the migrant crisis. The administration has condemned Abbott's aggressive border tactics aimed at stopping illegal crossings, saying that these measures put migrants at risk. Joining us now for the latest is Texas Public Radio's David Martin Davies. Hi, David. Hey there. So, David, the Biden administration gave Texas until the end of today to stop blocking access by the U.S. Border Patrol to a state-controlled city park on the Rio Grande in Eagle Pass. What can you tell us about that? Well, this is a close to where the Mexican woman and the two children drowned. Shelby Park is a 50-acre public area that fronts the Rio Grande. Last summer, the state's Operation Lone Star took it over for its command center, but it was sharing it with the Border Patrol. Abbott blamed President Biden and the Border Patrol for the most recent super surge in crossings there, and he ordered the Texas National Guard to keep the Border Patrol out of the park. And this is odd because this is their jurisdiction. One of the complaints that the state has had about the Border Patrol is that it is giving humanitarian aid to the migrants, freeing them from trapped in the razor wire, giving them first aid, water, and things like that. And the White House calls the Texas governor's policies cruel, dangerous, and inhumane. And as we mentioned, the deadline to allow access was today, and Texas has said it will not comply with the White House's request. So what happens from here? Well, yeah, today, the, uh, this afternoon, the Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxson, replied to the Biden administration saying they're not going to back down and said Texas will not, quote, surrender to Biden's open border policies. So they're not going to back down and the White House is likely to file a lawsuit. I mean, this is a story that we've been following closely. This would not be the first lawsuit against the state of Texas by the Biden administration over border policies and practice, right? Yeah, that's right. This looks like though the legal fight and the political fight that Abbott really wants. When you look at all the border issues the White House and Abbott are clashing on, those floating buoy barriers, the razor wire, the new Texas show me your papers law that makes it across and makes crossing the border a state crime, these are all in the courts. And just today, the entire Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed to hear the appeal on removing the Texas buoys from the Rio Grande. 
So this is about Abbott challenging Biden over who controls the border and weakening federal government authority there. David, what comes next with the story? Well, Abbott insists that Texas has the right to control the border because he says Biden is willfully not securing the border, and there's no evidence of that. And Abbott says, and these are his words, that Texas has the legal authority to control ingress and egress to any geographic location in the state of Texas. And he says that includes the park in Eagle Pass. Abbott also says recently that the only thing keeping Operation Lone Star from shooting migrants as they cross into the Texas is the fact that the Biden administration would charge them with murder. Now, he later tried to backtrack on that, but Abbott is taking an extreme hard line when it comes to so-called border security, and this will continue to be a hot political issue the closer we get to November. David Martin-Davies of Texas Public Radio reporting in San Antonio. Thank you. You're welcome. Over the past 100 days, the vast majority of Gazans, some 2 million people, have been internally displaced by war, according to the United Nations. And some members of Israel's government want them to leave Gaza altogether. For many Palestinians, that very idea invokes an earlier displacement, one that has become part of what it means to be Palestinian. From the Israeli-occupied West Bank, NPR's Lauren Freyer explains why. Fatima Abu Dahouk sits on her porch on a rocky hillside in the rain, ruining the day back in 1948 when her grandparents fled the farm that had been in their family for centuries in what is now southern Israel. They thought they were leaving for only a month, maybe two, she says. But they were never allowed back, nor were the vast majority of Palestinians who fled or were expelled when Israel was created. Their homes were destroyed or given to Jewish refugees. We still have the deeds to that land, says Fatima's husband, Sakar Abu Dahouk. He points to black and white photos on the wall of his relatives who hail from the same area. This is your father. Since 1948, their clan has moved several times, from Israel to Jordan to the Israeli-occupied West Bank, as Israel seized territory in subsequent wars, redrew boundaries, and built more Jewish settlements. It's like dominoes falling, Fatima says, a chain of events set off by that very first displacement. They live now behind a giant concrete barrier Israel built after the second Palestinian Intifada uprising. Family histories like hers are why it hits such a nerve when Israeli cabinet members say things like this. We support the voluntary migration of Palestinians out of the Gaza Strip, Israel's national security minister Itamar Ben-Gavir told reporters this month. Israel's finance minister has said similar things, prompting a flurry of denials from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that people will not be exiled from their land. U.S. officials have scrambled to make assurances, too. Now, Gazans, for their part, are just struggling to survive right now. But many say they've heard this talk. We refuse to allow history to repeat itself. A 55-year-old man named Zakaria Basuni told NPR's Gaza producer Anas Baba in the south of the Gaza Strip, where more than a million internally displaced people have crowded in. Basuni vows not to flee farther south to Egypt, even if the border opens. He says he would rather die in Gaza than leave his land. 
So aid agencies have a dilemma here. Some countries have already offered to host civilians who want to leave Gaza for their protection. That's the United Nations humanitarian coordinator Martin Griffiths briefing the Security Council on January 12th. He didn't say which countries. He did say he's deeply alarmed by Israeli talk of transferring Gazans out and says international law demands they be allowed to go home. Even with many, perhaps most, of their homes destroyed, many Palestinians fear exile more than anything else. There's nothing voluntary about it. They know from the past they were promised you're going to go back to your houses. That's why they kept their keys. But as we can see, the, the keys are displayed in a museum now. Tour guide Sama Rifai shows me some of those house keys in a history exhibit at the Yasser Arafat Museum, housed in the late leader's Old West Bank office. Modern Palestinian identity is founded on displacement, she says. Ancestors' trauma echoes through Palestinian music and art. If you look at this painting here, you can see their ghost. Also, we have like uh, poetry from Mahmoud Darwish. The Palestinian poet laureate, who penned the famous line in a poem called I Belong There. I have lived on the land long before swords turned man into prey. In the West Bank capital, Ramallah, 84-year-old Mohammed Suleiman Khader pages through an atlas of old Arab villages searching for his. You can see it on the map here. So here's Ramla. Where is Na'ana? He lived through what Palestinians call the Nakba, the catastrophe of 1948. That year, his family fled their village near what is now Tel Aviv and came to this refugee camp, where they've lived ever since, for 76 years, since Khader was eight years old. I still remember the watermelons we grew in our garden, he says, smiling. I ask him if his parents ever talked about regret. Did they ever say, We should have stayed. Like, we shouldn't have left. We should have... He says his parents died full of regret, that they didn't just insist on staying on their land, come what may. It's a decision many Gazans are now weighing amid piles of rubble. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Ramallah. Healthcare.gov, the federal health insurance marketplace, just had its biggest open enrollment period ever, with more than 20 million people signing up. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports. In Central Florida, Katie Rodders-Turner has been enrolling folks in health plans on healthcare.gov since the beginning. This year? It was incredibly busy. I catch her at her desk at 8.30 at night. The phones have been ringing. She works with 35 staffers in Tampa Bay who walk people through the sign-up process. They're called navigators. For us, we probably have seen about a 25% increase in activity and enrollments across the board. Now that open enrollment is over, she's throwing a potluck for the navigators, and she's already made her dish. A butternut squash quinoa salad with cranberries. (laughs) 
Enrollment has been going gangbusters on the Obamacare marketplaces across the country. Charles Gaba, a freelance analyst who blogs at acasignups.net, has a guess for this year's final numbers. When the dust settles at the end of January, when all the numbers are in, I suspect it's going to be around 21.3 million. That's nearly double the number of people enrolled when President Biden took office. Biden used federal funding for navigators and advertising that former President Trump had held back. Congress also passed extra subsidies for Affordable Care Act plans, making some as cheap as $10 a month. The enhanced subsidies made the A part of the ACA a reality, you know, affordable. There are still millions of Americans without health insurance. In fact, KFF now estimates 15 million people have lost Medicaid coverage in the past year. It's not yet clear how many of them have moved over to marketplace plans and how many are now uninsured. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, for many Internet users, the net has become less informative and less fun. Those who study the web say there are underlying reasons for this. The rise in artificial intelligence is likely to make matters even worse. That story in about 20 minutes on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Feldman Geospatial, presenting live jazz weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com Boston. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. The Dow chalked up its third straight losing session today. It fell about a quarter of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ also lost ground. S&P fell more than a half percent, and the NASDAQ was down nearly six-tenths of a percent. Boston-based Ratio Therapeutics has secured $50 million in new venture capital financing to conduct clinical trials on its first drug. Ratio is developing what are called radiopharmaceuticals to treat cancer. The new drug would be injected intravenously to transport radioactivity directly to tumors and not to surrounding organs and tissues. In the forecast after a pretty cold day, we should have a really cold night tonight, only in the mid-teens overnight. Tomorrow could double up to about 30 degrees, a gusty wind, lots of gray around tomorrow with more clouds as the day goes on. 23 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Hualien County, Taiwan. We're on the eastern edge of this island, where lush green mountains loom over the Pacific Ocean. It's a region where many members of the indigenous Turuku tribe live. Since our team has been in Taiwan, we've been asking two central questions. What does it mean to be Taiwanese? And who does Taiwan belong to? You don't often hear answers to those questions from the people who've been on this island long before anyone else, before the Chinese, the Japanese, or the Dutch, the people who were in Taiwan first. So nice to 
Jiwang Teira is half Turuku on her father's side. She grew up here in Hualien. And you're Jiwang's father? Yes. Teira? Teira? Jiwang's father, Teira Yuda, now runs a bed and breakfast. And he greets us with a traditional welcome song. He's singing, I wish you strength, because you need strength to survive in these mountains. Growing up, when people would learn that Jiwang was indigenous, they would sometimes ask the most ridiculous questions, like whether she rode a wild boar to get to school. <laughs> okay, have you ever ridden a wild boar to go to school? Of course not. <laughs> you know, wild boar is very aggressive. <laughs> it's impossible for us to ride wild boar to go to any place. Jiwang says ignorance like this led to the research she's doing today. She's a professor of social work at National Taiwan University in Taipei and focuses on the historical trauma that indigenous communities suffer. Today, indigenous people form about 2% of this island's population. The Taiwanese government tries to hold up those communities as part of what makes Taiwan a distinct society. President Tsai Ing-wen has formally apologized to the indigenous people for centuries of abuse, and indigenous culture is now being taught in some schools. But Jiwang's father, Teira Yuda, says a lot of people in Taiwan still look down on his people. A lot of average Taiwanese people would say to me, you're indigenous, you're not Taiwanese. I say, because I'm indigenous, I am a real Taiwanese person. Even when people on this island refer to Taiwanese as a language, they usually mean a language spoken all over Taiwan called Hokkien. Hokkien. It's what I spoke yes. when I was a little girl growing up. And I was taught to call it Taiwanese. Mm -hmm. But that feels exclusive to you. Exactly, yeah. I think because in Taiwan we have at least 16 indigenous groups. We have our own different languages. But why every time when we mention Taiwanese as a language? language then that's a particular specific language. Not a language that is never indigenous. No, no. Yeah, mm. yeah. Indigenous people also face a long history of a colonial oppression. For example, like a forced relocation, assimilation policy. Forced assimilation? A forced assimilation, yeah. Because in what ways have Turuku people been forced to assimilate here? Uh, I feel like an entire lifestyle changed. What Jiwang means is how Turuku people were forced from their homes in the mountains down to the foothills, where now the soundtrack to their daily lives is the noise of traffic. Indigenous people were also punished if they ever spoke their native languages instead of the required Mandarin. Jiwang says stripping her people of their cultural roots has led to enormous mental health challenges, like substance abuse. Traditionally, we don't have a substance use problem. We don't have a domestic violence problem. We don't have increasing suicide issue. And so I start to realize, yeah, I can see the impact of colonial oppression. Indigenous people say one form of ongoing oppression is Taiwan's conservation laws, which restrict their hunting. Hunting is central to the Turuku way of life, and Jiwang explains that hunting to them is about much more than killing animals for meat. It's a spiritual practice, a communion with ancestors. And, she says, ecological balance is already built into their concept of hunting. Hunting in our language is the sama. The sama means living with animals. We need to coexist with them together in order to uh, maintain our daily life and in order to have the next generations. So I feel like uh, that's very important for our psychological and spiritual health.
And Ji Wang's research has found that revitalizing traditional practices like hunting can help heal intergenerational trauma. If we are able to practice hunting, we are allowed to follow our elders. In this way, we can see intergeneration relationship building. If we are able to practice hunting culture without any worry about legal impact, then we can heal. That's why her father and other members of the tribe are working to restore certain hunting rights. At this point, one of the elders in Ji Wang's community, Loshi, leads a prayer as two hunters set a trap. They've been kind enough to demonstrate some traditional hunting techniques. You stick the stick in the ground, then you want to thread this very thin rope through that notch, and you're creating an open loop. And that loop grabs an animal by the leg and yanks it up. <laughs> Although the government has recently granted Elder Loshi and other indigenous people permits to hunt certain species in limited areas, he says they still can't hunt on some of their traditional homeland because it's now a national park. We don't need the government to regulate the way we hunt. Because the Truku people, we already regulate ourselves. For example, we don't hunt during mating season. We hunt in a way that preserves the balance of nature. And that's why indigenous people keep pushing for greater hunting rights. Teira Yudal has been meeting directly with President Tsai Ing-wen as part of an indigenous advisory committee. And although he recognizes that her administration has done more than any other president to work with indigenous people, he says there is still a long way to go. We've become second-class citizens. Even though our feet are planted on this land, we're not allowed to manage our own affairs. We are wanderers on our own land. Every colonizer is the same to us. They all came to subjugate us. But at least the Japanese didn't destroy our culture. It was the government of the Republic of China that assimilated us. It was the people who came from China who exploited our land. If China ends up exerting more control over Taiwan, do you think that would be good or bad for the Turuku people and other indigenous people on this island? Well, if you talk about China invading Taiwan, we would definitely risk our lives to resist China. But it's not about defending Taiwan. It's about protecting our land. Okay, now I'm going to ask a simple but big question. Who does Taiwan belong to? This land belongs to people who understand its history begins with indigenous people. As long as you love this land and you recognize that history, then you are a friend of the indigenous people of Taiwan. He says whether your ancestors came 70 or 300 or thousands of years ago, now they all live on the same land. And if you can recognize the beginnings of that shared history, everyone in Taiwan can live in harmony. The story was produced by Janaki Mehta and Mallory Yu with Hugo Ping. The story was edited by Patrick Jaron Watanen. You're my dear friend. I'm happy to meet you. May you strong your life. <laughs> I wish you strength as well. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Utah. Lawmakers are convening amid mounting pressures to enforce tougher conservation laws to save the imperiled Great Salt Lake. 
That story is coming up in about 25 minutes on WBUR. Boston Celtics are at home tonight to host the San Antonio Spurs. The Celtics are still the top-ranked team in the Eastern Conference. Tonight's game starts at 7.30. The Bruins have the night off tonight. A cold January day leading to a colder January night, about 16 degrees overnight tonight. Tomorrow, some clouds move in, and more clouds as the day progresses with some gusty winds should stick to the upper 20s. Friday could see a return of snow, not too much though, maybe about an inch or so by the time it ends. High temperatures right about 30 degrees. In Boston, 24 degrees at 530. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org. Antipa Fernandez Bernardo Arevalo was sworn in as Guatemala's president this week, but he worried this day might not come as the ruling class fought to keep him and his anti-corruption party out of office. Democracy is uh, at a difficult moment. What challenges lie ahead next time here and now? Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Florida, lawyers for former President Donald Trump laid out their strategy for defending him against charges of withholding classified and top-secret documents from authorities. NPR's Greg Allen says Trump's lawyers believe the case is an attempt to derail their client's run for the White House. Trump is scheduled to go on trial in May on charges that after he left the White House, he unlawfully kept classified documents and hid them from investigators. In a 68-page motion filed in Florida's Southern District, the former president's lawyers are asking Judge Eileen Cannon to compel prosecutors to produce evidence of what they say is, quote, bias and political animus by the Biden administration. Trump's defense team believes there was, quote, collusion between the special counsel's office, the White House, and other agencies to violate Trump's constitutional rights and executive privilege. The lawyers say in the trial they'll challenge the contention that Trump endangered national security, claiming that the intelligence community is biased against him. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. The federal health insurance marketplace just had the biggest open enrollment period ever. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports. Enrollment has been going gangbusters on the Obamacare marketplaces across the country. Charles Geba, a freelance analyst who blogs at acasignups.net, has a guess for this year's final national enrollment numbers. When the dust settles at the end of January, when all the numbers are in, I suspect it's going to be around 21.3 million. That's nearly double the number of people enrolled when President Biden took office. Biden used federal funding for navigators and advertising that former President Trump had held back. Congress also passed extra subsidies for Affordable Care Act plans. Whether those investments continue depend a lot on who wins the White House this fall. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street today. The Dow lost 94 points, down a quarter of a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healey will deliver her first State of the Commonwealth address tonight. Healey's office says she'll focus on topics that include education and housing. WBUR's Amanda Beeland has more. Governor Healey is facing challenges going into tonight's speech. The state is facing a billion-dollar budget shortfall, and the legislature has failed to act on some of her big items, including a $4 billion proposal to build more housing. GOP analyst Ed Lyons says more needs to be done to solve the state's housing crisis. The progress has been slow. I think uh, she's going to have to become more innovative than she has been in terms of making it happen. 
But Gary Daffin, head of the Multicultural AIDS Coalition, says he sees the housing bill as progress on an issue where solutions take time. It's an enormous challenge. We can't expect it to have actually solved that problem, obviously, in a year or it's going to be a long time. Healy will take the stage at 7 p.m. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. Our live coverage of tonight's address begins at 6.45. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is opposing federal government efforts to seek the death penalty for the gunman in the Buffalo supermarket shooting in 2022. Ten people died in the attack. The gunman pleaded guilty to state charges, and the Department of Justice is seeking the death penalty on federal charges. Presley calls the racially motivated shooting heinous, but says the death penalty is not justice. She sponsored legislation last year to ban capital punishment in federal cases. Harvard's longtime football coach is retiring. Tim Murphy began coaching the team in 1994. He led the Crimson to 200 wins and 89 losses with three undefeated seasons and 10 Ivy League titles. Murphy retires with the most wins in school and league history. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash, family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want, and Arts Emerson, with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. 23 degrees now in the Boston area. Pull up the blankets tonight. Temperatures should hover right around the mid-teens. Tomorrow rising to about 30 degrees top. Some sunshine likely early, then clouds moving in as the day goes on. Strong winds again. Light snow is possible on Friday. 23 degrees in Boston. It is 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events with online ordering and 24 7 live support. Learn more at easycater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end to end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Former President Donald Trump went face-to-face with his accuser, Eugene Carroll, in a New York courtroom today. Carol is seeking damages against Trump for defamation, stemming from when she went public with her account of a sexual attack in the mid-1990s. Today, she testified about the fallout from Trump's repeated false assertion that she made up her story. NPR's Andrea Bernstein was there. She's on the line now from outside the courthouse. Hey there. Hey, Mary Louise. Okay, so we got to hear from Carol on the stand today. What'd she say? It was an extraordinary scene. Many women have accused Trump of sexual assault and then lying about them when they speak up. But here was a woman who Trump has verbally attacked sitting just 30 feet away from him detailing what he had said in the White House, at campaign rallies, on social media, and on TV, and then describing how she received what she called a flood of slime from his supporters. And he sat there as Carol's lawyers displayed both his statements and the attacks on her by supporters. And what exactly was her testimony? So this case is not about the sexual attack in a New Yorker department store in the 1990s. Trump's liability for that was established in an earlier trial last May. This case is about defamation, beginning just hours after Carol published an excerpt from an upcoming book in June of 2019. 
Carol said she expected Trump to say the sex was consensual, not that it never happened, that he didn't know her, that she was a liar, and that, quote, people have to be careful because they are playing with a very dangerous territory, which is what he did say while president. She described how just hours after he made his first remarks, she was alone in a hotel room in Manhattan and began to receive insults and threats that tracked Trump's language. It was a, quote, new world for her after that, she said. And Andrea, the damages that she's seeking, what specifically is she saying she should be paid damages for? Carol said she lost her column and freelance offers dried up after Trump's attacks, that her credibility as a journalist and advice columnist had been irreparably harmed, that after receiving a barrage of threats calling her ugly and a hag, there were days she couldn't get out of bed, many days she feared for her life. After Carol described the initial threats after Trump's remarks in 2019, her lawyer, Roberta Kaplan, asked when the threats stop. And Carol said, they've never stopped. Each time Trump made a statement, she said, she's received threats, many of which I can't say on the radio. She was called an ugly hag and told she deserved to be raped and murdered. She testified Trump has attacked her as recently as this past weekend. Trump said it was, quote, a totally fabricated story. Even yesterday, Trump called Carol a liar in a social media post. Even today, in the courtroom, he attacked her credibility. What exactly happened in the courtroom? So at one point, the plaintiffs played a video clip of Trump speaking on CNN last May. That was in that town hall right after the verdict in the first trial. Trump said in the video, quote, I swear on my children and I never say that. It never happened. This woman is a whack job. And while they were playing the video, I could hear Trump, who was maybe 10 feet away from me and also about that far from the jury, saying, that's true. Andrea, what did the judge have to say about that? There were several objections by Carol's lawyers to Trump's running audible commentary in her testimony. Just before lunch, attorney Sean Crowley said she could hear Trump saying it is a witch hunt, it really is a con job, it's true. The judge, Lewis Kaplan, turned to Trump's lawyer and said, Mr. Trump has a right to be here. That right can be forfeited if he is disruptive. Then the judge spoke directly to Trump and said, I don't want to have to consider excusing you from the trial. At which point Trump said, I would love that, twice. The judge said to Trump, I know you would, you just can't help yourself. Trump said, you can't either, and then it was lunch. It sounds like just another wild day in the courtroom. How are Trump's lawyers handling all this? In cross-examination, Trump attorney Alina Haba suggested Carol was getting as many accolades as she was negative responses, that she enjoyed the publicity her book got her. Their goal is to mitigate damages. And just quickly, what's next? Just after court... Carol said, Trump once again said that the story was made up, that Carol's story was made up. He won't be in court tomorrow, but will be back Monday, most likely. And there will be cross-examination of Carol and other witnesses tomorrow. And Pierre's Andrea Bernstein outside the courtroom for us there in New York. Thanks. Thank you. Oregon and southwest Washington are digging out from one of the worst ice and wind storms locals have seen in 30 years. Officials have confirmed at least 11 weather-related deaths. And as Christian Foden-Vensel of Oregon Public Broadcasting reports, more are expected.
The stories are heartbreaking. A Portland woman died after a tree fell on an RV. Three people with her escaped, but she was trapped inside by branches. They'd had the stove on to keep warm, and the open flame started a fire in the vehicle. Emergency staff tried to get her out, but were hampered by downed power lines, and they couldn't use the nearest fire hydrant because it was frozen solid. Another man died in the leafy suburb of Lake Oswego, says Fire Marshal Hurt Zoudendijk. We unfortunately had a tree that fell and hit a house, and an, an elderly uh, man that was sleeping on the second floor uh, was crushed by the tree. Another man in Redmond, Oregon, was trying to stop his car from sliding when he got pinned against some rocks. He was there so long he died from suspected hypothermia. Zoudendijk says more than 130 trees blew down just in his town alone. Electricity was out to 125,000 customers at the peak of the storm Sunday, but crews have been working feverishly to restore power ever since. Their work's being hampered by an ice storm that moved through the area last night. Pappy Chowdhury is with Pacific Power. In my 25-year career here with Lake Oswego, I have I've never seen such devastation. Water is pouring off the deck of Kira Pollock's home in South Portland. The mother of four thinks she has a burst pipe. So that becomes challenging when there's heavy ice and snow accumulation and its icy conditions add up and make it even more worse. She's a renter, so she's going to call the landlord. Meanwhile, it's been a long few days. Oh, my goodness. I woke up and I heard kind of a loud noise in my closet. We've all felt like it was a little bit like COVID and we're stuck inside our homes at this point. Medical examiners in several Oregon counties have reported a number of suspected hypothermia deaths, but the final toll will take time as investigators have to consider other possible causes in each case. For NPR News, I'm Christian Foden-Wenzel in Portland. When the best-selling author of The Silent Patient strands seven characters on a Greek island, the reader expects a murder. But in the latest novel by Alex Michaelides, readers should not expect a detective to swoop in and solve the mystery. Something about resisting an easy, tidy conclusion with a superhuman detective felt right for me. I wanted it to feel messy and um, as realistic as I could possibly make it. Alex Michaelides on the twist and turns in his latest novel, The Fury. You can listen on tomorrow's All Things Considered. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. If you've been on the internet lately, you might have noticed that something seems different. Search results are increasingly full of junk. Social media feeds are mucked up with spam. Maybe you have wondered what's going on? NPR tech correspondent Bobby Allen had the same question. There are few people more chronically online than Corey Sika. He's the former editor-in-chief of the website Gawker. He's now an editor at New York Magazine, and he's always scrolling. Not too long ago, he got COVID and wanted to know how badly the virus was spreading and when he could return to work. I literally couldn't. I just gave up. Like, it was just dead links and random spam and just sponsored garbage and old pages. It was just absolute nonsense. Sika is not alone. More and more, both professional observers like Sika and everyday users are complaining that the Internet is more chaotic than ever. And it's not just a handful of anecdotes. Experts say there is a real shift underway. The quality of online platforms is degrading, yet for the big ones at least, most people feel like they have no other choice. 
Google is being inundated with AI-generated clickbait, and social media feels like an online shopping mall. Zizi Papakarisi studies internet trends at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Facebook, Instagram, many of these platforms have been excessively commercialized to the point where they lost their immediacy, the sense of place they afforded, the sense of community they facilitated, the sense of belonging they offered. Facebook has driven away its youngest users. Elon Musk's changes to the platform formerly known as Twitter have led to an exodus. Papa Carisi says people are moving away from posting publicly on social media. They felt fake, you know, so people started turning elsewhere. By elsewhere, Papa Carisi means people are spending more time sending private direct messages and text messages. And they're flocking to smaller online communities found on sites like Reddit and Discord. It's more personal, less cluttered, and you probably won't run into creepy product placement. There's, of course, a downside, too. And it might sound like an old problem. Echo chamber, anyone? If you retreat just to spaces where you're with people you already know, then you lose a lot of what made social media and makes a website like Twitter so fascinating and engaging, which is encountering new people and new ideas. That's technology writer Max Reed. He says while being in a filter bubble is certainly nothing new, the algorithms that determine what people see on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube have gotten hyper-individualized. And that maybe you don't have the same kind of universal experience that you might have felt. And I would argue that this is not that different from if you were a frequent user of the internet in the 1990s or in the early 2000s. Back when going online meant visiting an individual website. Imagine that. The time before Google, Amazon, Twitter, Instagram, and the rest became the main tunnels we use to navigate the messy world of the internet. One thing New York Magazine editor Sika has noticed, being new is no longer a priority on many social media feeds, which he says is adding to this moment of being disoriented online. Now, TikTok, Instagram, even Twitter stuff is days, weeks, months old when you see it. And it's wild because you're just seeing this thing and you're like, oh, well, this is happening. And that's not what that means anymore if you're just seeing it. For Sika, at least, one bright spot of the newly chaotic web has been, well, email. I got an email from an old friend the other day, and I was like, oh, like, she had news, and she was like, I was like, wow, I'm opening an email and answering it. This is like, this is wild. <laughs> it was like a real flashback experience. It says a lot about the state of the internet in 2024 if the best interaction you have online comes in the form of an email. Bobby Allen, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Wednesday evening. After one year in office, Governor Maura Healey will deliver her first State of the Commonwealth address. It happens tonight. Listen for live special coverage at 645, just about an hour from now, here at 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. A dry night tonight, partly cloudy, a bracing wind, though. Temperatures about 16 for a low. Tomorrow could make it to 30, with gray skies increasing through the day, gusty winds still. Friday, some more clouds, chance of snow, but not too much. Temperatures right around 30 degrees on Friday. This is 90.9 WBUR. It is 23 degrees in Boston at 549. The Boston accent is a thing of legend. 
It's loved, it's hated, and many attempt to mimic it, especially in Hollywood. Are you or are you not a knock? But what exactly makes up a Boston accent? Here's what you need to know from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. The traditional Boston accent is non-rhotic. That's a fancy way of saying you don't pronounce an R when it comes after a vowel, like this. In this hot, sunny weather, I could fall down at the drop of a feather. But another quirk of the accent is that those R's can also pop up in other spots. I hope that Mary bought coffee and pizza at the food shop. It's what's called an intrusive R. To learn more about how Boston sounds, head to WBUR.org slash field guide. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. I am not sure how many ways we can express the fact that it is just really cold in much of the country, but... Here's another one. In Chicago, electric vehicle owners are having a hard time with their car batteries. It is so cold that if they reach a charging station before their batteries give out, they are facing long lines and slow charging times once they do plug in. So what gives? Why is it so hard? Michael Crossan has spent a lot of time evaluating how EV batteries behave in extreme cold. He is an automotive technician with Consumer Reports Auto Testing Center. He joins us now. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. So, Michael, if you could, can you just start by breaking down the challenge that these awful cold temperatures pose to EV batteries and their abilities to charge? Yeah, it's definitely something that is certainly current, you know, with the weather that we're all having. Um, And EVs tend to do worse in cold weather, mainly because of the need for heating in the cabin. Gas cars are less efficient in the cold, too, but it's less of a consideration because you know, if we're getting a little worse fuel economy, when we run out of fuel or run low on fuel, we can stop and just fill up the tank pretty quickly. But all of the the heat that we get inside the cabin is coming from the battery of the vehicle. So that is affecting our range. And in our testing here at Consumer Reports, we see anywhere from 25 to 30% reduction in overall range in colder temperatures. And a big portion of this is due to using the climate control in the vehicle. Okay, so I have a question here. I don't drive an electric vehicle myself, but my neighbor does. And one of her constant complaints is the fact that she has trouble often finding places to charge her car. So I'm wondering, in places like Chicago, where we're seeing some of the biggest problems, how much of the issue is exactly that, not having sufficient charging stations? It's definitely a consideration for for an EV driver. Um, You know, if you can charge at home, if you have great charging infrastructure at home and maybe even at your place of work, it's probably a little bit of a less of a concern. But if you're relying on public charging, it can be a bit of a roll of the dice. You know, you 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 drive there, you use some of the maybe less range that you you have. You get there and maybe of the six chargers, maybe two are not working. There's cars already charging. Maybe there's even cars waiting. So it can be a, a bit of a disappointment and definitely deserve some consideration, some planning as an EV driver. You don't want to be on your way to work and realize that you need to charge. And now, you know, you're waiting for someone else to charge. And before you know it, you know, you're, you're showing up to work three hours late because you had to stop and charge your EV. Um, so it's a bit of a different lifestyle. Um, you definitely have to plan ahead and kind of be conscious of that. But it is something we're seeing here in Connecticut as well. So it's not just sort of a, a Chicago problem. And even places where, you know, they don't get the extreme weather, where it is a little bit you know, more mild and warm, you can still run into those issues with the charging stations. I mean, listening to you talk about this, I'm a little hungry for some tips for drivers. What can people driving electric vehicles do to maximize their range? 
I would say the, the biggest thing you can do is in the morning when you're kind of getting things ready, leave the vehicle plugged in if you can. If you have a charger at home, leave it plugged into the wall as you're maybe clearing snow and ice off the car and do what they call preconditioning. You can either do this from the vehicle itself or a lot of these EVs have an app that you might use off your smartphone. But basically you're warming up the inside of the car and the battery and that's key too. The battery likes to be a little bit warmer than sub-freezing temperatures. So the warmer that battery is, the more efficient that battery will be and you kind of gain some range back. Not to mention the electricity is coming through the plug off the grid to warm the vehicle up so you're not pulling off of your available range to get that vehicle warmed up and melt some of that snow and ice. The second thing is going to be precondition the battery before you DC fast charge. Again, these batteries like to be warm and fast charging is kind of strenuous on the battery. We're putting a lot of um, energy back into the car and we want that battery to be as warm as possible. And through the, the infotainment screens on these cars, there's a, a preconditioning setting that you can do to prepare the vehicle for fast charging. And the next two things you can do is um, try to lower the heat in the cabin. You know, definitely don't drive around with it off. You know, you want to be comfortable. You want to be safe. You want to be able to, like, defog the windows. But you don't need to ride around at 80 degrees. You know, think about, you know, kind of what temperature maybe you set a house to. You know, you don't want to have to be all bundled up either. You don't want to be freezing the car, but you also don't need to be sweating. So pick a, a mild temperature, 72, 74, 76 degrees, and that will save a little bit of range. And then... This next one is for EVs in general, whether it's cold out or even warm out, drive a little bit slower. Mm. EVs become less efficient the faster you go. So at the highway speeds, they're less efficient than around town. So maybe just take five or 10 miles an hour off your speed and you will gain a little bit of range back. And again, you just need to plan ahead so you leave enough time to get to your destination. That's Michael Crossan, an automotive technician with Consumer Reports Auto Testing Center. Michael, thank you and stay warm. Thank you so much. Utah's legislature is reconvening this week amid pressure to pass tougher conservation laws to save the Great Salt Lake from drying up. Drought made worse by climate change is a factor in the lake's decline. But as NPR's Kirk Sigler reports, scientists lay most of the blame on upstream diversions for farming and Utah's booming population. Dr. Tom Nelson was born and raised in Salt Lake City, and when he and his wife moved home after medical school training a few years ago, he says he was horrified at how bad the air pollution had gotten. If you live in the Wasatch Valley, you're now accustomed to intermittent dust storms, which um, are essentially dried up lake bed dust flowing into the Wasatch Valley. And you can see it. You can smell it. You can breathe it. Toxic dust with mercury and arsenic blowing off the drying lake bed mixed with Salt Lake's already notorious smog. Nelson, who now runs the ER at Intermountain Medical Center, one of Utah's largest hospitals, says on bad air quality days, they're seeing more patients needing care for asthma and other respiratory illnesses. He's one of 300 doctors who recently signed a letter pressuring the Utah legislature for a more aggressive crackdown on upstream water diversions that feed the lake. Everyone in the Wasatch Valley is concerned and agrees it's a problem, but it feels like nothing's getting done. Many Utah leaders disagree. Last year, the legislature put millions of dollars toward conservation and some incentives for alfalfa farmers upstream of the desert lake to use less water for crops. They also created a new Great Salt Lake commissioner appointed by the governor. That commissioner is Brian Steed. Here he is speaking at a University of Utah forum this month, warning that taking too much water away from farmers could bring its own set of ecological problems. 
And so we're looking to work with farmers and ranchers to make sure that they can stay in business. Steed says Utah bought a little time after last winter. The state had a huge snowpack, which helped restore lake levels some and lower salinity, which might help struggling wildlife. Really incredible water year led to increased water storage and really helped with salinity in the south arm, which was a bit of a terrifying place at the end of 2022. Utah's Republican Governor Spencer Cox is expected to unveil more proposals aimed at water conservation in his State of the State speech tomorrow. Now, all of this comes amid a lawsuit filed by national and local environmental groups that seeks to force state leaders to keep a lot more water in the streams that feed the Great Salt Lake. In early 2023, Utah scientists warned the lake could dry up within five years unless dramatic action is taken. Kirk Sigler, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and London on Queen Mary 2. With a commitment to White Star service, fine dining, and entertainment, cunard.com crossing. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at WaltonFamilyFoundation.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. And this station is 90.9 WBUR. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey will deliver her first State of the Commonwealth address tonight. Listen for live special coverage. It starts in 45 minutes at 6.45 tonight here at 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. After a cold day, we'll have a really cold night tonight, only in the mid-teens overnight. Tomorrow could make it to about 30 degrees and with a gusty wind. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. I'm executive editor for News, Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The head of Israel's military forces says the likelihood of war with Lebanon north of Israel is higher than it has been. Coming up, a former U.S. security official says there are growing fears of a wider regional conflict. We're one catastrophic event, you know, a successful attack on U.S. forces, for instance, from this thing really escalating. 
Lisa Mullins what the U.S. can do to contain the fighting coming up. Also, the United States is once again describing the Houthis in Yemen as a terrorist group and is planning to impose sanctions unless the militants stop attacking ships in the Red Sea. And the James Webb Space Telescope has revealed the earliest known black hole to date, one that existed just 400 million years after the Big Bang. It's 601. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Two major TV networks have canceled the remaining Republican primary debates ahead of next week's vote in New Hampshire. As NPR's David Folkenflik reports, the development suggests the idea of any debates among GOP contenders is circling the drain as candidates bail out. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley have skirmished in recent debates as other candidates have fallen off. This time, only DeSantis is in. Haley said she'd only commit if former President Donald Trump took part. Trump has skipped all this year's debates. ABC News went first in canceling. It announced its plans yesterday along with its local TV partner, WMUR, in New Hampshire. Today, CNN followed suit, saying it would host a town hall event with Haley tomorrow instead of the debate on Sunday. Haley and DeSantis are trying to catch up with Trump. His campaign says he has no plans to participate in any debate, giving his whopping lead in polls ahead of upcoming primaries. David Folkenflik. NPR News. President Biden gathered congressional leaders today at the White House to try to push forward on his request for billions more in Ukraine aid. However, Republican Speaker Mike Johnson continued to insist on substantive policy changes to curb migration across the southern U.S. border. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, meanwhile, said addressing Ukraine and border policy were both essential and had to be done in tandem in a bipartisan way. Schumer said Senate talks on border policy changes were making progress and said he's optimistic there could be a deal to advance Biden's funding request. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's return trip from Switzerland was delayed today because of a problem with his Boeing plane. NPR's Joel Rose reports it's the latest public relations problem for the company. The State Department says Blinken was unable to take off from Zurich as scheduled because of a mechanical issue with his plane. The Air Force says the plane is a modified Boeing 737 business jet. It's an older model, not the type of Boeing 737 MAX 9 jet that's been grounded by regulators after a panel blew out in midair on a flight earlier this month. Still, it's another headache for Boeing. The company says it's appointing an outside advisor to assess its quality control systems. The FAA says it's investigating Boeing's manufacturing and production lines. Regulators say public safety, not speed, will determine when the MAX 9 planes can start flying again. Joel Rose, NPR News. Former President Donald Trump was back in a Manhattan courtroom today as part of a civil trial revolving around the writer E. Jean Carroll, who's accused Trump of sexual abuse. Carroll was the first witness at the trial, which is to determine what damages, if any, Trump owes her over remarks he made while president. Trump, for his part, was threatened with expulsion by the judge for repeatedly ignoring a warning to keep quiet. The trial in this case is only about damages. Last May, a jury awarded Carroll $5 million in damages for sexual abuse and defamation. Trump continues to deny the accusations. Another down day on the financial markets today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 94 points. The Nasdaq dropped 88 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Public Schools are celebrating the largest donation in their history. The school system is receiving $38 million from Bloomberg Philanthropies. WBUR's Carrie Young reports the money will train high schoolers in health care careers and set them up with jobs right after they graduate. 
The grant is part of a larger initiative from Bloomberg that pairs high schools in 10 U.S. communities with hospital systems struggling with workforce shortages. Mass General Brigham, which has 2,000 job vacancies, will collaborate with BPS. Ann Klebanski is the president and CEO. What we will do is dramatically enhance our ability to train educate and diversify the next generation of healthcare professionals at such a critical time for our workforce. BPS will use the money to double in size the Edward M. Kennedy Academy for Health Careers to 800 students and add new career pathways. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. A state judge in Maine is putting on hold the decision to stop former President Donald Trump from appearing on the primary ballot there. Maine's Secretary of State ruled last month that Trump should be removed from the ballot for his role in the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. Today, the judge said the decision should wait for a U.S. Supreme Court ruling on a similar case in Colorado. Massachusetts election officials will hold a hearing tomorrow on efforts to keep Trump off the ballot here. 37-year-old Gerard Mayo was formally introduced as the New England Patriots' next head coach at this afternoon's news conference. Team owner Robert Kraft called Mayo recalled something that Mayo said shortly after the team drafted him in 2008. Kraft and Mayo, they go together pretty well. <laughs> WBR's Fausto Menard has more on today's announcement. Mayo is the team's 15th head coach and its first black one. He says that significance is not lost on him. You better believe it. Being the first black coach here in New England means a lot to me. Kraft also acknowledged the importance, but says he chose Mayo because he's the right man for the role. Mayo says it's now his job to help develop players and coaches. I don't want to teach them what to think. I want to teach them how to think. And once we get to that point, I think we can get back to where we need to be at the top. Mayo says right now he's evaluating the team and is not ready to announce any personnel decisions. But he says the team already has great leadership. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. Should be partly cloudy overnight tonight. A frigid wind, about 16 for a low. Tomorrow could make it to about 30 degrees. Clouds collecting during the day. Gusty wind still. Friday, more clouds. A chance of snow, but not too much in the way of accumulation. 23 degrees in Boston at 607. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. It's a discovery from close to the dawn of time. Scientists have found the oldest known black hole, and it's upending ideas about the early universe. More on that discovery in a few minutes. First, since Israel's war against Hamas began, the U.S. has tried to contain the conflict to prevent a wider regional war from breaking out. Now, with U.S. attacks against Iran-backed rebels in Yemen, drone strikes in Iraq, and fighting across Israel's northern border with Lebanon, we have to ask, is that regional conflict the U.S. wanted to avoid already here? The last three presidents have tried to shrink the U.S. footprint in the Middle East, and our next guest, Ben Rhodes, worked for one of them. He was Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Good talking to you, Ari. So in your view at this moment, is the U.S. already involved in a regional war in the Middle East? Yes, uh, I think that regional war is here. And if you look at What's happened since October 7th, you've seen violence break out between a variety of different groups, uh, often backed by Iran um, and the U.S., uh, and then, of course, Israel and Gaza. So I think by any definition, you would call that a regional war. Uh, by any definition, that seems like a bad thing. So how can the U.S. try to tamp this down or get out of it? Or what should the U.S. strategy even be at this point? Well, from my perspective, obviously, this started with the horrific Hamas attack on October 7th. Uh, and then you've had this really brutal uh, and massive escalation over the last several months of the Israeli military operation in Gaza. And that's really 
the root of this wave of escalation. And so any pathway to de-escalation, I think, necessarily has to involve de-escalation and some form of ceasefire in Gaza. So you think um, as long as Israel continues its military campaign in Gaza, this wider regional war is not going to quiet down anytime soon? Yes. And, and look, uh, that's just the logic of the situation. I mean, you, you've seen uh, the longer this war goes on, the more there's a risk of escalation as different groups try to assert themselves, are opportunistic about it. You get into tit for tat back and forth. And look, you know, we're one uh, catastrophic event, you know, a successful attack on U.S. forces, for instance, uh, or an attack on a U.S. diplomatic facility in a place like Iraq from this thing really escalating. You said that some groups are being opportunistic about this. And after the U.S. and the U.K. struck those targets in Yemen last week, a Houthi official named Nasruddin Amr told my colleague Jane Araf basically like, OK, now it's on. Here's what he said. It certainly means that there will be an escalation and expansion. The American and British bear the responsibility for the escalation they brought upon us. So, Ben, is it possible that this is what the group wanted all along? Yes. And, and I think we have to be very careful about this. You know, Hamas, they're arsonists. They want the U.S. in this conflict. The Houthis, same thing. They are not afraid of this escalation. Uh, you know, the U.S. is entirely rational and right to want to protect the flow of commerce through the Red Sea. The global economy depends on that. However, you know, I get concerned when you escalate into the kind of direct strikes against the Houthis in Yemen for a couple of reasons. Uh, the Houthis, they're not going anywhere. That's where they live. That's where they're from. They've endured years and years of war and proven to be quite resilient through that. The capabilities they have are not very expensive, and they are not deterred by those strikes. As you hear in the clip, this is what they want. They want to be at the vanguard of a resistance to the United States and to Israel. But how do you avoid getting pulled into an unsolvable military objective when the Houthis seem to be deliberately provoking and saying, like, what are you going to do about it if we keep attacking these commercial ships in the Red Sea? There is a capacity, particularly if it's a foreign terrorist organization like an Al-Qaeda or an ISIS that is using somebody else's territory uh, to plan attacks and have foreign fighters there. That can be militarily dealt with and defeated. When you're dealing with uh, an indigenous population and a resistance group, an insurgent group like the Houthis or like the Taliban was in Afghanistan, that's an entirely different equation. And so to me, what you do is you try to protect the core interest of the free flow of commerce through the Red Sea. But when you start escalating into Yemen, I think it gets dangerous. As I mentioned, the last three presidents have tried to shrink the U.S. military role in the Middle East. Why do you think that is so difficult to do? Well, we have these interests uh, that keep drawing us back. We have enormous interest in oil and gas and fossil fuels, uh, despite the transition that we're undertaking. That makes us somewhat beholden uh, to some pretty unsavory Arab partners uh, in the Gulf. You're talking about Saudi Arabia, among others. Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar. Uh, then we have an interest, obviously, in our close relationship with Israel. In my view, that's much more challenging when the nature of the Israeli government is Bibi Netanyahu and the most far-right coalition were kind of tethered to a government that is not acting in concert with, I think, what the Biden administration would like them to be doing. Uh, and then we have, obviously, interest in counterterrorism. But I think we have to learn the lessons of the last couple of decades, which is there really aren't military solutions to these problems. And I think we have to be very careful. I don't think Israel, by the way, can solve its problems in Gaza militarily either. I think they're learning the same lesson that the United States learned painfully in multiple countries since 9-11.
there has to be, I think, more of a pivot towards diplomacy, towards collective solutions, and towards marshalling resources to build something uh, instead of this pattern of destruction that we've seen in the region. You've said this is not going to end until Israel's military assault on Gaza ends, or at least diminishes. That's not up to the U.S. So if you're President Biden trying to avoid a regional war, and Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu is saying, we're going to keep striking Gaza, what option does the Biden administration have? I think they have options to utilize leverage on the Israeli government to try to de-escalate the situation. And look, the Biden administration has been messaging in recent weeks that they, they are concerned that they would like to see more aid get into Gaza, that they would like to see diplomacy to try to return hostages, that they would like to see some pathway towards a Palestinian state. Bear in mind that this Israeli government actually, as a matter of policy, rejects uh, the aspiration for a Palestinian state. So to me, you have to put on the table, we're going to condition our assistance. Uh, I also think diplomatically, the United States has basically been the shield for Israel in places like the UN Security Council. You have to be very careful, but I do think the United States can can turn the dial forward a bit. We allowed a resolution to pass calling for humanitarian pause. I think there's ways to, again, explore diplomatically how can the United States be pressing Israel in the direction of de-escalation. Obviously, they have a right to defend themselves. They have a right to go after the military wing of Hamas. But that doesn't mean that the way that they're doing it is consistent with either their own interests or America's interests. And so at a certain point, I think you have to use the leverage that you have as Israel's principal ally in the international community to say, this path isn't working. Ben Rhodes was Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ari. And now it's time to turn to outer space, specifically black holes. Black holes and other massive objects that have been spied near the dawn of the universe are shifting our understanding of the earliest years of the cosmos. Here's science reporter Ari Daniel. Roberto Maiolino is an astrophysicist at the University of Cambridge. He's been pivotal in developing the James Webb Space Telescope that launched on Christmas Day two years ago. Maiolino is part of the team that designed and built one of the telescope's key instruments called the Near-Infrared Spectrometer. The instrument responsible for splitting the light of uh, galaxies and stars in their colors. So it's essentially the rainbow of the galaxy. In the first half of 2023, Maiolino and his colleagues directed that powerful new telescope towards a special galaxy. It's called GNZ11, and it formed 13.4 billion years ago, a mere 400 million years after the Big Bang. Now, GNZ11 has been something of a puzzle. For such an old and compact galaxy, it was spectacularly bright. It would have required a large number of stars packed in such a small volume. But stars take time to form, and the universe was young then, too young to have had enough time for all those bright stars to be born. So Maialino and his colleagues pointed their new instrument at the GNZ11 galaxy. The detail of the particular rainbow that came streaming back was stunning. It was super exciting. But at the beginning, the spectrum was quite puzzling. It had a lot of unexplained features. 
So the team collected more data and speculated that the bright ultraviolet glow emanating from the distant galaxy was probably coming from huge amounts of gas swirling around and pouring into a black hole. The friction of all that gas being sucked inwards would have heated it up and lit it up, likely explaining why the galaxy was so bright. And that's how Maialino and his team figured out what they were dealing with, a supermassive black hole. And so at that point, uh, yes, the excitement doubled and got even more interesting, of course. Interesting, because this wasn't just any black hole. It's about 1.6 million times the mass of our sun, and it was in place just 400 million years after the dawn of the universe. It is essentially not possible to grow such a massive black hole so fast so early in the universe. Essentially, there is not enough time, okay, according to the classical theories. So one has to invoke alternative scenarios. Alternative scenario one. Supermassive black holes in the early universe were simply born big due to the collapse of vast clouds of primordial gas. Or, and here's scenario two, maybe early stars collapsed to form a sea of smaller black holes, which could have then merged or swallowed matter way faster than we thought, causing the resulting black hole to grow quickly. Or maybe it's a combo of both. The findings are published in the journal Nature. Priyava Natarajan is an astrophysicist at Yale University who wasn't involved in the study. These authors have made a persuasive case that there is a black hole, despite the fact that it has not been detected in the X-ray. The surefire proof that you have an actively accreting black hole. Natarajan says that if more black holes like this one are revealed, this may well mark the beginning of a new era of discovery in the outermost reaches of our universe. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Dow chalked up its third straight losing session today. It fell a quarter of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ also lost ground. The S&P fell more than a half percent, and the NASDAQ was down nearly six-tenths of a percent. More news coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, where college-age students and high school grads can experience a unique mixture of friendship, deep personal growth, and fun. Improve confidence while gaining concrete academic and life skills and practicing healthy habits. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. Boston-based Ratio Therapeutics has secured $50 million in new venture capital financing to conduct clinical trials on its first drug. Ratio is developing what are called radiopharmaceuticals to treat cancer. The new drug would be injected intravenously to transport radioactivity directly to tumors and not to surrounding organs and tissues. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Habib and Associates Architects, serving the greater Boston area with comprehensive architectural services. Proud to support WBUR. HabibARCH.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it, and thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. The New England Patriots formally announced Gerard Mayo today as the team's next head coach. He is the 15th in franchise history and the Pats' first black head coach. Over on Causeway Street tonight, the Celtics look to improve on their league-best record of 31-9. They host the San Antonio Spurs. Tip-off is at 7.30 tonight. Partly cloudy overnight, a gusty wind, about 16 degrees for a low. 
Tomorrow could make it to around 30 degrees with clouds collecting during the day. Dusty winds still. Friday, we should have more clouds, a chance of snow, but not too much in the way of accumulation. This is 90.9 WBUR, 22 degrees in Boston at 621. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting Stand Up If You're Here Tonight, a man-seeking audience, a one-man, one-audience show. Experience The Huntington like never before in the intimate Masso Studio, 264 Huntington Ave, starting Saturday. Tickets and more info at HuntingtonTheater.org. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Herring fishermen in the Northeast don't want to be forced to pay for professional observers on their boats. They have sued, and that case is now before the Supreme Court, where protesters rallied today, urging the justices to uphold the precedent the fishermen object to. We object to this relentless power grab. Let me hear it again. We object! But the case isn't even really about fish, and it actually has far-reaching implications for the environment, healthcare, and the financial industry. NPR's Carrie Johnson watched it from the courtroom today, and she is now here in studio. Hello, Carrie. Hey, Juana. So, Carrie, enlighten me if you can. If this case is not about fish, then what is it about? You know, it took almost a half an hour for the topic of fish to come up at the oral argument in the court. And even that was kind of a passing mention. This case really is about federal regulation. What happens after Congress passes a law, law that may not be clear about something? The question is, who gets to decide? Is it experts in federal agencies like the EPA or Health and Human Services? Or is it federal judges? And under a framework that's been in place for about 40 years, federal agencies make those calls now. But big business groups want the court to throw out that precedent, which is known as Chevron deference. Okay, and Carrie, what is the argument for scrapping the precedent? Lawyers for the fishermen say things are really out of whack as they operate now. They say the agencies have too much power, power that should belong to Congress or to federal judges who are supposed to interpret the law and who do that all the time. Here's Roman Martinez, a lawyer for the fishermen. We would respectfully suggest that the solution here is to recognize that the fundamental problem is Chevron itself. Interpretive authority belongs to the courts. He says the Supreme Court has really run away from this Chevron precedent for years now, and there's really no way to fix it. He says it might take a decoder ring to figure out how to apply the law properly here. And he told these justices, end it, don't mend it. All right, then, Carrie, that's the argument for getting rid of this framework. So tell us then, what's the case for keeping the precedent in place? Justice Elena Kagan really jumped on the lawyer for the fishermen. She asked him a bunch of really tough tough hypothetical questions like this one. There's a new product designed to promote healthy cholesterol levels. Would that be a dietary supplement or a drug? And then she asked him a bunch of questions about artificial intelligence. She was basically arguing those are calls that should be made by experts at agencies, not judges. Here's more from Justice Kagan. It's best to defer to people who do know, who have had long experience on the ground, who have seen a thousand of these kinds of situations. And, you know, judges should know what they don't know. The Biden administration is arguing for the Chevron framework to stay in place, too. The Solicitor General says that it's a bedrock part of administrative law that's been cited thousands of times over the years. She says if the Supreme Court overturns another big precedent like they did with abortion, it's going to bring thousands of cases, cases that will swamp the courts and the Justice Department. 
And Carrie, I know it's always tricky to predict how the Supreme Court's going to rule just based on the argument, so I won't ask you to pull out a crystal ball here, but did the justices offer any clues to what we might see? Yeah, most of the court's conservatives seem really skeptical about keeping Chevron. Justice Neil Gorsuch, who already wrote this precedent, deserves a tombstone was pretty clear again today about wanting to get rid of it. So were Justice Brett Kavanaugh and Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas, too. But Amy Coney Barrett, another Trump appointee, seemed really worried about opening the floodgates to more litigation if they got rid of this precedent. I didn't hear five votes to walk away from this 40-year-old case, but I could be. We'll, We'll learn more about whether the justices want to chip away at it by the summertime, and that's when a decision is expected. NPR's Carrie Johnson. Carrie, thank you. My pleasure. Okay, to news now that the U.S. is blacklisting Iranian-backed Houthi rebels again, this time to put pressure on them to stop attacking ships in the Red Sea. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports on the new diplomatic campaign to ease one of many flashpoints in the Middle East. The U.S. military has been striking Houthi targets in Yemen. Now diplomats are trying to use the levers they have to punish the Houthis, placing them on a list of specially designated global terrorists. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says this is in response to Houthi drone and missile strikes on ships in the Red Sea. The United States, with allies and partners around the world, has made clear that there must be consequences for those attacks. And today's designation follows on our military action last week to hold the Houthis accountable. For their actions. It's been a difficult balancing act for the Biden administration. Three years ago, it took the Houthis off a different terrorism blacklist to facilitate aid to the war-torn nation and to help move along a peace process between the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels and a Saudi-led military coalition. The new terrorism designation goes into effect a month from now and is set up in a way that should allow aid and diplomacy to continue. Gerald Firestein, a former U.S. ambassador to Yemen, says the latest move is mostly symbolic. Shipping arms to the Houthis is already banned by the UN Security Council. Houthi leaders are sanctioned. Houthi financiers are sanctioned. So um, there's really nothing much that a designation adds to any of that. Houthis don't travel. They don't have bank accounts overseas. They don't really do very much. So he thinks the U.S. is just grasping at straws, trying to figure out ways to influence the Houthis who control much of Yemen. The Houthis say they're attacking ships in the Red Sea to protest Israel's war in Gaza. And Firestein, who's with the Middle East Institute, says the U.S. strikes and the terrorist designation just play into their hands. Their position on Gaza is very popular with Yemenis, even with Yemenis who don't support the Houthis. Uh, They think that it's uh, good for them to raise their regional profile and to be seen as a core member of the Iranian axis of resistance. So he doesn't think they'll be deterred by sanctions or even the recent U.S. military strikes. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he thinks the best way to isolate Houthis as well as Iran and other Iranian proxies is to integrate Israel into the region. And Blinken believes that Arab states are still willing to normalize ties with Israel if there's a real pathway to a Palestinian state. This is actually clear when you look at it and see it. The problem is getting from here to there. And of course, it requires very difficult, challenging decisions. It requires a mindset that's open to that perspective. Blinken was speaking in Davos, Switzerland, where his Iranian counterpart was also making the rounds, warning of more intense conflicts in the region if Israel does not stop its military campaign in Gaza. 
In the meantime, the Houthis continue their attacks in the Red Sea, and while Ambassador Firestein doesn't think they want to return to the war in Yemen, he says there are risks of miscalculations. He says a successful attack on a U.S. Navy ship could push the U.S. to a more aggressive posture. So it's those kinds of things that I think are more worrisome than, you know, seeing uh, either side really going in for uh, all-out war. U.N. officials are worried about something else. U.S. sanctions could impact their work. Yemen is highly dependent on international aid. U.S. officials insist there will be carve-outs to make sure Yemeni civilians don't suffer more. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, a look at how the kinship between the federal government and Boeing has evolved. The company and federal regulators have long been relatively close, maybe too close. Managers at the FAA worked very closely with Boeing to speed production of planes and came to treat Boeing as its customer rather than the flying public. The potential impact on safety coming up. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Make a difference as an artist, educator, or counselor with a degree from Lesley University. Get started today at lesley.edu and Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities, and Scrub-It-Up Car Wash. Cleaning cars since 1966 with 22 New England locations. Learn more about Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited at scrubadub.com. The actor Daniel Kaluuya grew up in London. Now he's directing a story set in London public housing where people are resisting eviction. We wanted to explore and celebrate that and uh, show what is worth fighting for. The characters in a housing project called The Kitchen. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.